willing to pay the price, we invite you to go through the mirror of life. <laughs> Fifteen years ago, we thought we'd killed a demon. But he's been waiting to kill us. Fifteen years, cousin Metahouse. But now we are here to free you. To give you life. But must they all die? All! I mocked a talk of vampires. I was wrong. I've seen proof, terrifying proof. People have been killed in villages. Killed by vampires. None of you will live. Your children will die. To give me back. And welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I am Jinx, your co-host. I'm sitting here with Paul Farrell, my co-host. Paul, how's it going this evening, man? Oh, it's going good. Going good. That's it. That's all you. That's all that's you got. It. Yeah, I'm. I'm that's a chill person, man. <laughs> I I always expect you're gonna like meet my energy during one of these introductions, or even overpower well, me. Like, I'm, surprise I'm, the support, hell out of me I'm supporting your energy with no, my the... mellowness. It's it's a good balance, I think. I hope. It's like a yin yang. Perhaps I should just stop talking, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe my energy is negative. Now I'm now now I'm like neurotically worried about my energy. Oh god. It's gonna <laughs> Thanks, Ellie. Appreciate that. Cut to next week I'm gonna be like, and I'm sitting here with my co-host, Paul Farrell. Paul, how's it going? Crickets, crickets, crickets. I'm fine. <laughs> All right, you know what? I'm not even gonna no, do I'm the good, traditional uh... I'm actually good. I'm feeling good, good right now. I'm not going to do the traditional intro because uh, I, I, I think folks have already heard her now, but Allie Chapel is back on the show. Hello. Thanks for having me back. So, Allie, you recorded with us last time. We actually, Paul and I, skipped an entire movie that we're going to be getting back to next week or the week after, which was, uh, Paul, was it Countess Dracula or The Vampire Lovers? Which one Vampire was Vampire Lovers. Vampire Lovers. Okay, so we are still trying to uh, get a kind of a co-host, kind of a guest to match that as best we can. Uh, but in the meantime, we knew that Allie was a fan of the movie that we are dealing with this evening. So, uh, yeah, we're just going to be recording with her uh, twice in a row, Allie. You might be – Paul, did did Michael Ferrati even repeat, like, directly after any of his previous episodes? No, I Maybe the first one, but I don't know if he did two in a row. I'll uh, check. I'll it might be the first – <laughs> i don't know but... well unfortunately i've set you two on a collision course and at some point you two are going to have to arm wrestle for uh hammer pub supremacy i'm sorry right. it's been that's, a while since I've wrestled, but i feel like i can get myself out of retirement <laughs> yeah you can practice up get you know build up those biceps so who who are you going to be though in this situation? Like, are you going to be Jeff Goldblum, or are you going to be the guy who gets his wrist bo- broken by Jeff Goldblum? Oh, I'm always Jeff Goldblum in every situation. That's fair. That's that's. that's, that's Although, we're talking about arm wrestling. So there's a movie uh, that's going around at the film festivals right now, and it's a comedy called The Golden Arm, and it stars like Betsy Sidero and um, Rob Fun- Funkles. Is that his name? I'm going to screw that up, but it's. So funny, and it's just about underground arm wrestling for ladies. 
That sounds fantastic. And if you like Betsy Sidero, which I like, adore her, it's like so much funnier just to have her be so ridiculous in it. I love that. So it's kind of like a female version of Over the Top, is what I'm hearing. Please. Yeah, pretty. Yeah, pretty close. And it's hilarious. And like, do you guys ever see um that Christmas movie that came out this year on Amazon Prime with Kristen Stewart? Uh, happiest season where she brings yes. home like her lesbian sister. Yeah. The the awkward sister, like the third one who like paints that really nice picture. Oh, She's the one yeah. who has the golden arm. Oh really? Oh, that makes yeah. me really excited because she was so good in that movie. <laughs> She's so good. I'm pretty. I'm not a hundred percent sure. But I think she may have also like wrote the movie. Oh and really? It's so good, and she's oh so gosh. good in it. Just like seeing her get so jacked up, and then arm wrestling all these like really butch women. <laughs> so, right? I this just like skyrocketed to the top of the list of movies <laughs> I want to watch. Oh my god, a thousand percent! Everyone should watch it. I don't know when it's out, but like it will be out soon, hopefully. Okay. All right. Love it. I'm marking that down. That's I'm so excited. <laughs> I will say one thing though, like the movie is going to be an immediate loss for me. If, it, you know, if they don't have even at one point, somebody wear a ball cap and turn it backwards. Like we need that just once. Ooh, I, don't I mean, know that happens or not. it's an arm wrestling movie. I got to believe that at the very least, someone's wearing their hat backwards just in general. But whether <laughs> oh, or not they all have it, like, um, like themed costumes that they wear. I love it. Okay, this sounds great. I'm gonna look this up after. Is it like on VOD yet, or? Um, it might be, but I know that I saw it like I think way earlier this year when it played at a film festival. I can't remember which one. Maybe Cuff, but it's so good, and I recommend everyone go and see it. Here, I'm dropping the IMDb into the chat so you guys know which movie I'm talking about for later. Awesome. Love when it. When you all get too drunk and you're like, what was that movie she was talking about? Oh, we never listened to Allie. Allie, you know me so well. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked on one podcast and yet it's like you could see into my brain. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm still teetotaling, but I feel like I'm baby stepping back toward alcohol. So, uh, I don't know. It's been, I've been off, <clears throat> what, like... Over four months now, I'm getting kind of bored. I want a shot. Oh, I want to man, do shots. You should like congratulate yourself with some booze. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> reward, reward your sobriety with a yeah. lot of alcohol. I might do that. I, I, uh, I have uh, I have several beers in front of me, so I'm I'm ready to go for the night. Yeah, same. I got a bunch of summers beer. Nice. That was not a fancy story. That was, I, you know. Stories don't have to be fancy to be entertaining, I think. At least well, on the Hammer Club. I can imagine. Yeah. Is there a sort of uh, Pavlovian response that your body has to watching Hammer films in advance of doing these commentaries? Like, does your liver just instinctively know if it hears Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing's voice that it's going to be getting hit with a lot of alcohol? I mean, probably. I, I, tend to, I tend to have a few drinks when I watch these now, in general. <laughs> um, just to be... Yeah, just to be honest, I, I don't know. You know, a, a better question would be, have I ever watched a Hammer movie sober? <laughs> what, if Do I even, did, what, if, huh? what if you're a huge Hammer fan drunk? But what if you watch <laughs> if you one watch of these movies and you, you were like, like wait a second, I don't like this I at all. I hate all of this. That would never, I could never <laughs> hate a Hammer movie. 
Terrence Fisher is a hack. What the hell? Hey, what you is no one talks about Terrence Fisher like that. No one <laughs> puts, puts Terrence, Terrence in a corner. corner. <laughs> we both went there. That was we good. did. We did. Uh, now I'm imagining Patrick Swayze actually lifting Terrence Fisher up above his head by his waist and then throwing him in front of a car. Um, yeah, they'd both be pretty I drunk. I think he's lifting him above with his waist, but in like the dirty dancing style where he holds him up. Yes. Totally <laughs> that. It would be like probably surprisingly romantic it would be pretty sweet like not sweet isn't cool sweet i mean it would be cool sweet but i think it'd also be kind of just sweet sweet i'm yeah. now imagining christopher lee singing that song like could you imagine uh-huh. his voice yeah it is oh wow and like, I, it, like his his deep baritone the time of my <laughs> life just just acapella or would he have any sort of accompaniment uh, yeah, I think Peter Cushing would just waltz in behind him. Thorley Walters on one side, maybe Michael Ripper oh, would come man. in. They all start harmonizing. This is this is the image I want to see, like when I die. Like that's <laughs> the image that should like invite me into heaven's warm embrace. So, what do you think you'll see when you get to the gates of heaven? Uh, uh, Christopher Lee singing, singing "I Had the Time of My Life." I don't know, man. Well, Patrick <laughs> Swayze dances with Terrence Fisher. Oh man. I'm writing this down. This is going in my dream journal. <laughs> oh God, that's that's what you're gonna see when you when you finally uh, have too much to drink during one of these podcasts. Oh, that's that's inevitable. So <laughs> I'm ready. It's either sobriety or uh, or yeah, Terrence Fisher dancing with Patrick Swayze. Okay. It's, and honestly, between the two, which I've made do? my choice. <laughs> All right. I uh this is madness already. I love it. Yes. Um so <laughs> we're off the rails so, early tonight. <laughs> I might as well drink at this point. Uh speaking of which, Allie, are you drinking this week? I know you said you murdered a bottle of wine before. So uh last week. Or was it two weeks ago? I can't remember. Mm, but two weeks. It was like two weeks ago. Yeah, tonight I'm drinking Summersby because turns out like and I know this. Like, I'm not a stranger to being wine hungover the next day, but every time I'm like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm not going to be hungover the next day. And every time I am. So I'm drinking Summer's Bee tonight because I was at the grocery store and bought a whole bunch of it. What is Summer's Bee? That sounds like a 1990s Richard Gere movie. It's um a cider. Like a hard cider. Also not beer, so it's okay? So it's pretty good? Yeah. Nice. I like it. This one's like blackberry flavored, and Ooh. I'm like, I'm here for it. That sounds super delicious. It is super delicious, and I it's not it. like terribly sweet or apple tasting, which is my big thing. Not that I don't like yeah. apples. It's just I'm not a fan of apple flavoring. Right. That's fair. I miss uh. Like three in. Oh wait, one. I'm sorry. Huh? Oh, you cut out. I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. Or did I cut out? Somebody's cutting out. That's fine. We're cutting out here. You know, I'm cutting all this out. It's cool. That's <laughs> what editing's for. Exactly. Yeah, that's what production's for. All right. I I miss I miss Red Comets. Everything can be fixed in post. <laughs> that's a fact. Uh, Paul and I uh, have even recorded uh, entire episodes again. Um, yeah. That, well, That's like the episode. ultimate fixing it in post. And exactly. <laughs> Just <laughs> do it over. <laughs> hey, Paul, do you remember that episode we did last week? Yeah. Want to do it again? What? 
we've only done that one and a half times. So uh, that's that's pretty good. After after 30, 35 episodes, you know, we're doing pretty good if we only had to do one and a half. Yeah. So. Not bad. All right. So we haven't recorded in two weeks. I got to tell you, like usually every week when we record, I'm like, oh, it's going to be a stretch to talk about enough movies to fill the, uh, you know, the opening uh, before we start talking about the movie proper, like commentary, I haven't seen that much this week. I've been busy, blah, blah, blah. In the last two weeks, I feel like I've watched 47 horror movies. Um, yeah. it was, it same. was tough narrowing same, them same down. Thing. So, yeah. uh, I don't know. We can, I tell you what, I got an idea just to keep this, uh, you know, this, this opening a little bit short, we can do what we did the last time. We can each choose two movies to talk about, but you know, if we kind of want to touch on some of the other stuff that we've watched recently, just as kind of a, uh, if we have any movies we'd like to recommend, I'm completely cool if we do that, too. Cool. And I, I imagine there's going to be some overlap, right? Like, oh, I, I'm sure we've all watched, like, the big things that everyone's talking about. Um, what, what would that be, Paul? What, what would the big thing oh, be? Oh, I don't know. You know what? Maybe let, let's a little thing for... called R.L. Stein's Fear Street. Okay. You were I was going to say, is it Fear Street? <laughs> it is Fear Street. A movie I've been waiting for for like twenty five years, <laughs> because I wanted there to be Fear Street movies in the nineties, and I think there should have been. But there should have been. But you know what? I feel like we finally got our nineties Fear Street movie, which is. Amazing. I mean, we Not did. We literally did. <laughs> they Not made a nineties Fear Street movie. <laughs> you know, it feels like it was perfectly preserved. We will get to that. I'm certain that we will get to that because I got some stuff to say about those movies too. But before we do that, I gotta say. Allie, you are our guest. What have you seen in the last two weeks that you'd like to talk about? Okay. Number one, across the board, I finally saw Till Death, the new Megan Fox movie where she's chained to a dead body. Mm. I saw that one too. I loved it for just a bunch of reasons. Mainly, like, I'm pretty positive that, like, my ultimate sexual kink is just watching Megan Fox beat up dudes. And it's just so good. <laughs> That's a good kink. I, I can yeah. get behind that kink. I'm raising my hand too. saying yes. Like, <laughs> yeah, we all love Megan Fox. She is perfect. And then I also saw False Positive. We talked about that last week. Yeah, what did you what did you think about that one? Okay. I truly get why people were like, what the fuck kind of ending is this? But I liked it. Like, I would give it like three and a half stars out of five. Like, I, I enjoyed it. I'm not against a world where we're all just birthing Pierce Brosnan's kid. <laughs> there are worse realities. <laughs> there really are worse realities. But also all just that scene where he's up. like, where he's about to like inseminate her in the beginning and he like looks at Justin Thoreau and then like gestures to the syringe full of sperm, just being like, This is good stuff here. Like <laughs> like, thank you. <laughs> it expired knowing that it's his sperm in the end, and you're like, you motherfucker. <laughs> but I loved it. I thought it was great. I could I'm probably gonna watch it again. I, I need to give it another shot because I, I wonder, you know, it's funny that you mentioned those two back to back till death and false positive, because I, I almost had the exact opposite reaction between the, like false positive. My issue was 
I loved the first half so much. And then I felt like it kind of ran off the rails in the back half. Till Death was a movie that it took like 40 minutes for me to get into. Like I could, I think the biggest problem with Till Death is that they have to sell the movie on what happens in the back half. So as a result, like it, it, it kind of messes with your expectations. Like, Oh, so well, hell Paul, do you know what the movie's about? Uh, other than that log line, the Ellie sort of led with, which is like Megan Fox is chained to a body. Okay. That's pretty much all I know about it. So, um, okay. I'm going to watch it. I just, I you know, that's exactly what the problem is, which is, you have to sell the movie that way. Like you have right. to say it's, she's chained to a dead body. Like this is kind of Gerald's game in a way, you know? Right. Yeah. So you have to leave with that. But yeah, the problem that is, yeah. Yeah. But the issue with the movie is, is that the movie doesn't want to get to that point until like 40 minutes into the film. And so if you're expecting that the first 40 minutes are a bit of a trudge and I'm all for movies taking their time and building mm. up the characters, but there isn't a great deal. Like she's very good. Like I've always thought that Megan Fox is like a deeply underrated actress. And I think that has something to do with the fact that she is like strikingly beautiful. And I think there was almost this, I wish somebody would write a paper on this. And but, like, like Hollywood some... kind of shit all over her and Michael Bay shit all over her. And like, yeah, but she's great. She's she, she's fantastic, and I feel like she gets slighted because mm-hmm. of like her beauty. I think people would be more keen if she were just, uh, you know. And I hate to put it this way, but I'm putting it in the mouths of other people that I believe are out there. I think people would be keen on her simply being a sex symbol, and that's it. And in fact, she's actually a very good actor. And so she carries the movie in the first half, but I just don't feel like the writing was completely there. But I will say. Once you reach the back half of the movie, it gets unbelievably engrossing and intense and just damned great. Like it's it's worth trudging through the first 40 minutes for me just to get to the back half of the movie and how damn good it is. So if that sounds like kind of a a weak recommend, like it's really not. I'm just just adjust your expectations and know that you got to chew through a lot of leather first before you get to the great stuff in that movie. Or, Allie, do you think I'm completely wrong about that? Were you completely cool with the opening? I was, like, so interested in the opening because I kept, like, trying to be on the same page as her as she was going, like, okay, well, there's got to be a key around here. There's got to be a knife around here. And he's somehow, like, I'm always here for people being the most petty. And this dude was, like, <laughs> piece of garbage ever. He was, like, not only am I going to, while you're sleeping – empty the entire kitchen, clean everything out, like, throw away the car keys, like, then I'm gonna chain myself to you and then shoot myself right in front of you, and then you're fucked, enjoy, thanks for cheating on me, and it's like... Damn. Like, it is next level petty, and I was so here for it. You you just, like, 100% sold me on that movie, because the term next level petty is, like, my jam <laughs> in movies. I love that shit so much. I, I'm a huge fan of, like, teen movies, and next level petty is a really important part of every teen movie. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm in. I'm so in. 
A thousand percent. And like you obviously you find out more details about all the stuff that's gone sure. down and whatnot. Yeah, just right. the opening being like, no, you bitch, you cheated on me. I'm gonna fuck up your life by <laughs> killing myself while chained to you is the <laughs> what fucking a ridiculous bitch. thing. I love it. <laughs> I mean he he literally becomes right like the ball and chain in a weird yeah. way. Like it's I love it. Um and then he, like, no. Forces her to like look at her like, wh- like the only clothes he leaves her are her wedding dress and you're like oh <laughs> what yes that's so good <laughs> I might I do... write this tonight <laughs> it is it is it is a fun. thousand percent do it I, I will say it is interesting like the way the movie sets her up at the very beginning you you the movie does toy with your sympathies a bit because at first you're like oh am I meant to feel kind of you know, hard toward her a bit. And am I meant to feel a bit bad for her husband? But then her husband is such like a controlling piece of shit. And then you find out this is not really a spoiler, but there's this kind of casually tossed off line about how he cheated on her all the time. And so he's a complete hypocrite for having an issue with her cheating on him and trying to get out of like what was a really horrible, loveless marriage. And it's just like, oh, okay. But it's, I will give the movie credit for that in the first half where, you know, there's that bit of tug of war with your sympathies for a bit, I think. Yeah. But, uh, but and you're, I, Ali, you're completely action. right. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. The seriously, the, the, it, it almost, tell me if I'm crazy for this, but just in kind of the ingenuity of the setup and then how it rings the most amount of tension that you possibly could from that scenario, uh, in the final half of the movie, like th- this almost seems like a remake of a Hitchcock film that never was. It feels like, you know, how A Perfect Murder was an updating of Dial M for Murder? Yeah. Till Death feels like a remake of a Hitchcock film that never was. Yeah, A Perfect Murder is great. But, uh, so yeah, no, I I totally, like, even though I was a bit cool on the first half of it, I think, Paul, I think I even texted you halfway through. I was like, why is everyone talking about this movie? I just don't get it. And then 30 minutes later, I was like, forget what I said. This is amazing. Yeah. 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 It's great cat and mouse game halfway through and like all the insane scenes where she just has to like run away from stuff while dragging a full grown man's dead body. (laughs) And just like the entire time she's like swearing under her breath like fuck this is stupid like oh my god and like (laughs) that would be me being like you fucking piece of shit like. And I love it too, like all of these, you know, what's so great about it is that it, it, I, I remember if I can, I'm going to terribly paraphrase it, but I think um, Shane Black once uh, talked about his screenplays, like his approach to writing movies, like Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang, and The Nice Guys, where you constantly say like, oh, this thing happens to a character and they overcome it by this. Oh, but then this happens. And so they have to deal with that, but then this happens and then they have to, and so on and so forth, so on and so forth. Right. And it feels like the last half of the movie is totally that, like she gets these little victories and then they're just snatched away from her, you know, constantly. And it's just, it's the most frustrating. But then there's no gas and you're like, fuck you. (laughs) Then she siphons the gas, but it turns out she can't get the car out of the thing, you know, because it's all of those little things that just keep building and building and building. And it's, at a certain point, you almost can't help but just shout "fuck" at the screen, like you know, in solidarity with her. Like every single time, because you immediately, like when she wakes up, you're like, "Oh, she's just gonna go and find the keys or the car keys," and she goes downstairs, and the kitchen's empty, and you're like, "Oh, this dude thought ahead. What's next?" 
And it felt like Amazing. every idea that I was like, oh, just go and do this. She would go and do and be like, fuck, there's no gas in the car. Fuck, the entire lake is frozen, so I can't use the boat. Like, like Paul, seriously, if if Jigsaw were less of an engineer and way more of a dick, that's what this guy's done to her in this movie. Well, that, I mean, everything you're saying is just only exciting me more. Like, I don't even want a podcast anymore. I just want to go watch this movie. Yeah. <laughs> we'll regroup later. Go watch yeah. the movie. We're All no right, guys. I will be back in 90 anymore. minutes. <laughs> I'm sure you'll still be doing the, the what you watch this week segment, so I'll be okay. Now, Paul, how about you? What have uh, you, you mentioned something a little earlier? Do you want to do you want to lead with that, or do you have anything else to go? Well, I'm I'm of two minds here because, um, like you, I've watched about 52 movies in the last 14 days, and you know, I want to talk about the new stuff, but like I feel like everyone's talking about the new stuff. So a part of me also just wants to like talk about some of the more like obscure things I've seen. Um, but can I, say I guess one I thing? can. I can sort of do both. Um, I'm going to lead. I think we should all do Fear Street maybe towards the end because we all saw it. Um, but I will lead with a new one that I think we probably all saw um, just to kind of bookend it a little bit. So Werewolves Within. Let's talk about Werewolves Within. Yes. Um, did Did you both see this? No, but I have it. Okay. Um, but you can see. Well, and it's not really even like a movie, you know, there's really only one thing I could spoil, which is like who the werewolf is, or I guess if there is a werewolf, because that's kind of the question of the movie. It has a lot in common with um, Wolf of Snow Hollow to me, uh, where it's sort of like a, a quirky group of characters in a small Snowden town. And there may or may not be a werewolf causing havoc. Um, uh, the difference is in Wolf of Snow Hollow, it's more horror than comedy. This is more comedy than horror. And this one is much more self-contained where, you know, they, they pretty much all end up in this big sort of hotel. Um, and it kind of feels like Clue also. Like it, it sort of feels like all these quirky characters in this one place, who's killing people, who's the, who's the, the killer. Uh, and you know, it's just, I, so I really liked it. I thought it was a, a lot of fun. I know everyone's sort of singing its praises. Um, it comes from Josh Rubin <clears throat> who did uh, scare me. Although unlike that movie, he didn't write this one. Um, this one was written by uh, Mishna Wolf, I believe. Um, and I think, is this her first screenplay? I think it is. Or her first feature, I guess. I'm, I'm sure she did. Yeah, I think I was, stuff. I heard something on a podcast about this recently, how she was a screenwriter that worked with, is it Ubisoft maybe or something like that? The, the video game developer and that they actually sort of shepherded along a number of writers sort of adapting their properties. And yeah, she had a take on Werewolves Within that. As far as it sounds, it's not much like the game at all, but... No, yeah. it sounds totally different than the game. Um, but no, it's... it's um, Wow, I don't know shit about this movie. Yeah, it's a VR. It was a VR-only game. So I think that's why a lot of people haven't really experienced it very much, is like you had to have a VR system to play it. Um, 
but it's yeah it's 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 a very fun movie um i liked it so i i'm like one of the two people on the planet who like wasn't a huge scare me person um i know like everybody adored that movie i i just not not to rain on that parade it just it didn't the jokes didn't really like land for me i think it was like a little too i don't know I don't want to get into that one, but uh, this one, the jokes really landed for me. I felt like the characters worked much better. I felt like it flowed better. Sam Richardson is the main character, and he's just phenomenal. He also was a supporting actor in uh, The Tomorrow War, which I also watched. I don't know if either of you guys saw that one. Um, Yeah, it's that one's kind of like a live, die, repeat sort of movie um, where it's like there's this war in the future, and they contact people in the past to say hey in 50 years there's going to be this huge sort of world ending war and we're out of people we need you to send people from the past to fight in this war so humanity doesn't go extinct so basically like they do this like worldwide draft where like large swaths of people who have to go get tested to make sure that that they that they're not a, it's this whole convoluted time travel thing but anyway they send people in the future sam richardson is one of the sort of like random people from the past who gets sent to the future to fight in this war but again he's very funny he like he makes what could be a very forgettable role incredibly memorable um he's with his charisma and sort of his delivery and like characterization with with not a whole lot there in the script um, and here he has a pretty meaty character to play with. Um, and it's just great. Um, his co-star is, uh, how do you say your last name? Milana Von Trub. I'm going to, I'm sure that's wrong, but she's great too. <clears throat> and, and yeah, so it's like, there's some good gourds. It's got some creepy moments, but really what makes this movie work is just the quirky performances and the script. Um, it's just really, really entertaining. Everybody does a great job. Everybody shows up. Um, the guy, who's the guy who's also in What We Do in the Shadows, the TV show that's in this movie? Harvey Gillen, I believe. Yeah, he's phenomenal in it. Um, yeah, I just, I, I really, really had a good time with this movie. So anyone who hasn't rented it yet definitely should check it out, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I loved it. I, I just, it was just fun it's funny it's clever as hell i i adored it i i remember tweeting about it right after i watched it i uh and then i was like you know it's a little it's a little agatha christie like it's a little rod serling in a way you know there's a little the monsters are oh my god i'm a huge serling fan and it's very like you can see some of serling's concerns in there in a way like it's without getting too spoilery there's a little you know, the monsters are due on Maple Street just a little bit in there. Uh, it's a little, I mean, just the basic setup, like who is the werewolf? I mean, it's very the beast must die, you know, the old uh, the old amicus flick. And uh, But more than anything, I, I just, I appreciated the fact that, you know, whether it was intended to be this or not, you know, maybe just by virtue of the fact when the movie is landing, it feels like it's this kind of insightful post-mortem of like Trump's America, You know, like it's that town is very much a microcosm of America. And I love that Sam Richardson's character is is a guy who just battles all the animosity in that town and all the cynicism and all of the hate and everything with kindness. Like it's literally he just uses kindness at every turn and he doesn't buy into the paranoia. He doesn't buy into the anger. You know, he doesn't allow it to change him. And I love that that 
that's kind of the point of his character. And when there is inevitably, like, again, I'm not going to get spoilery, but there is a confrontation of sorts at the end. And the villain, as it were, I love that they call him out on that. You know, you're just so damn nice. <laughs> you know? I, I I love that he kind of takes pride in that fact. You know, that's that's arguably what keeps him alive <clears throat> up until that point. But um, yeah, no, I, I really did. I, I loved it. And uh, yeah, Sam Richardson is great. Milana Vantra, I think, is just cast her and everything now, please. Um, and yeah, yeah, it's 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 one of the better movies that I've seen recently. And Paul, I I think I liked Scare Me a bit more than you, but I will say that this movie is like it's leaps and bounds beyond what his abilities were in that first movie, like what he's able to do, not just you know in the sense of like having a larger budget, but just how he's able to handle that sort of tone between horror and comedy, you know, so much more deftly. And, you know, after having watched it, you know, he's, he's, he's been doing this campaign, I think recently on social media where he wants to uh, reboot dark man. Yeah. And, you know, Ooh. after scare me, which I, I adore dark man, but you know, after scare me, I was just kind of like, I don't know if you're the dude, you know, for dark man. And then after watching werewolves within, I'm just kind of like, Oh, you're the dude. Yeah. You're the dude for dark. Man. Oh, he could do it. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So, and Allie, please let us know what you think of it when you watch it. I will. I'll watch it. ASAP. Rock on. I guess uh, the movie I will choose before we dive into fear street, a couple down, you know, the line is, uh, a movie called Censor. Are either of you familiar with this? Yes. Okay, so you've seen it? Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was great. It's one of my favorite movies this year. I absolutely adore that film. Um, it is for anyone who isn't. Paul, have you seen it yet? I haven't seen it yet. I'm familiar with it. I just haven't got a chance to watch it. No, it's cool. It's just, you know, I recommended it to you like a week ago. And I, was, I, was I like, know, Paul. but it, I got a VOD yeah, stuff. You, it's been like a week. Oh, I know. A whole week. I, I told so, you it was like one of my favorite, you know, movies. I buy so many Blu-ray. I, I have to watch the things I'm buying. I don't want to pay for more stuff. I don't. <laughs> I got a VOD stuff that costs money. <laughs> if it's free, if it's on like Netflix or you know Shutter or Amazon for for free, I'll watch it. Is uh, <laughs> is Netflix or Shutter or Amazon how I how you saw Werewolves Within Paul the movie I didn't recommend? Well, Paul? that was Paul. Paul. That was like Paul? that was different. Paul. That looked really funny. <laughs> and I like comedies a lot. We've been over this. We had our whole comedy sec- conversation last time. Damn it, fail. You know right. I'm more prone to that. Or 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 epic pettiness and Megan Fox being chained to a corpse. That's enough to make me rent it. But go well, on. Tell me tell me about this great movie. I will watch it. I will watch Censor. You Censor has neither... Nothing to do with it, like... I it it yeah okay fair it censor has neither Megan Fox nor extreme pettiness nor uh, nor comedy at all at all Uh, there is no there there is no laughter to be found (laughs) at censor Paul Um, no for anyone who isn't familiar with censor it is set in the 1980s in the UK and it concerns a film censor whose job it is to uh, protect society from the damaging effects of filmed violence and sex and whatnot. And it's uh, it's set basically during that period that gave us the video nasties. And I don't think the, you know, the sort of body that the lead character works for, I don't think they ever call it like the BBFC or anything like that. It's just like an organization, but you know that that's essentially what they're meant to be. 
And the lead character in this film, when we're introduced to her, she is the person calling the, not the shots, but the cuts, as it were, like, okay, we need to trim this many frames from the eye gouging. You know, I'm okay with the tug of war over the intestines, but we need to trim back the shot of the genitals and this and that and so on and so forth. And otherwise, this movie will not get a pass. And being a horror film. And especially like growing up in the 90s and hearing like all the shit that the MPAA did to filmmakers like Wes Craven, you know, like Jack Valenti and his lot, you know, not willing to give Scream even an R rating at first because Marco Beltrami's score was too frightening. And, you know, that alone would get the movie an NC-17, you know, all that bullshit. So silly. It, terrible, terrible. And, and knowing that it was so much worse in the UK in the 80s, you are sort of you're kind of instinctively like geared toward hating your lead character as a horror fan and what the movie does so unbelievably deftly, like straight away, right out of the gate is make her somebody who is very sympathetic. Um, you know, she's had trauma in her past. She is, she's somebody who's kind of eking out a very lonely existence. She is somebody who believes that what she doing, she's doing is right. You know, that she is she's all about like wanting to get her job right. And she's all about wanting to protect people from, you know, seeing stuff that they shouldn't, you know. And so it's a very interesting kind of place to be put in as a um, as a fan of horror movies watching this film where you kind of hate what this person represents. But you can't help but connect with them on a human level because, again, she's just very sympathetic. But <laughs> Once the movie sort of kicks in the gear and the plot presents itself, we find that the censor is due to watch a film from a kind of reclusive filmmaker who personally requested that she check out his film. And the opening of this movie that she watches as she's taking notes, the opening presents a story that seems very much like a memory that she had uh, from her childhood. You know, uh, and we find out that her sister had gone missing when she was a kid. And so this this the details are so close to what happened to her as a child that she becomes kind of fascinated with this filmmaker. She finds another one of his movies in like this seedy UK video shop that is kind of renting out video nasties from underneath the counter because otherwise it's illegal and you can get a shop shut down. And here she is a censor essentially going into one of these uh, dens, you know, these video dens and, you know, renting this, uh, you know, offending material, as it were, that she probably didn't pass as a censor herself some months prior uh, or somebody like her anyway. But she watches the movie and finds that one of the actors in the movie looks what she imagines her sister would look like uh, had she grown up, had she not disappeared. And she becomes convinced that this actor is her sister grown up that she was taken by these people, you know, this filmmaker. And that's why, you know, his newest movie seems to represent something traumatic that happened to her when she was a kid. And from that point on, the movie is just kind of this journey for the lead character in this investigation as she kind of digs deeper into this filmmaker's work and then tries to find him and sort of force a confrontation between herself and you know, whoever this filmmaker is to find out if, you know, her suspicions are in fact correct. And it's a very short movie. It's very quick. It's a little switchblade of a flick that's like 80 minutes long, but it's, it's super engrossing. It has some really interesting things to say about censorship and the sort of the goals of censorship and, you know, 
why certain people would feel the need to want to protect others, you know, and make those decisions for them, you know, and uh, it, it it's kind of again, it kind of lurks in that morally gray area, and it it I I would never agree with something like that, but I can at least understand like her point of view, which is something that I can't say would have been the case before I actually watched the movie. Um, but anyway, it all leads to, again, I wouldn't dare spoil it, but it leads to an ending that is just, it, it's really gripping. It's really horrifying. You know, it's funny, like with horror movies that deal with certain types of past trauma, it seems to me that they usually end on a, either, you know, kind of like in a really moving way or perhaps on a note of just abject horror. And one of the many amazing things about this film is that it does both at once. Like the, the, the final moments, your heartstrings will be tugged even as ice water is being pumped into your veins. It's, it's kind of like this amazing magic trick that the movie does. And um, it, it left me completely rattled. I watched the movie I, th- I rented it for what, like a 24 or 48 hour period. I watched it three times over the course of that period. Uh, it is probably my favorite movie of the year so far. I, I just absolutely adored it. It's uh, the filmmaker's name um, is Prano Bailey Bond. And I cannot wait to see what she does next. And I will say the lead in it is, uh, I believe it's, uh, I can't pronounce this name. But I guess this goes mine. Cause I'm like, it's, Niam uh, Algar or Alger uh, but she plays a character named Enid Baines and I again Allie you've seen the movie like would you agree with me there's something like again everything that she represents I just kind of despise and yet I couldn't help but feel a great deal for that character because of what she had been through and kind of the, the, the wreck it made of her life oh my god yeah like everything you said a thousand percent and it was just so well acted and like uh the girl who plays the lead she was also in um what's that show called that's on hbo uh raised by wolves oh yeah yeah yeah. and she's great in that too and and just oh i was also just obsessed with that this movie was like written and directed by a lady and i'm always so supportive of that and i'm like yes give ladies more money to make horror because we make insane horror films like it was just so good. I do need to definitely re I only watched it the once, but I'm going to find a copy and watch it again because I don't know if I have a copy anymore. It might yeah. not be streaming in Canada. I may have got it through other means. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. We rented it. Never mind. Okay, you can't rent it in Canada. No, it, it may is, have I been would... the other movies that I talked about that I may have gotten through other means. <laughs> No, I, uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, not only I watched it three times, pretty much back to back. And then I bought the score like straight after the first viewing, I was like, well, I need that. You know, it's, uh, because that opening and closing theme are just, it's haunting. Yeah. It's, but you know, it's, it's haunting, but it's also cool. Like it, it has that kind of synth theme where you're like immediately wanting to bop your head to it. But at the same time, like it's, yeah, you're right. It's haunting and chilling and it gets under your skin and worms around. And that's, that's kind of the movie in a nutshell, right? in that opening theme, I just, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of a far more satisfying and a far more emotionally engaging kind of version of Barbarian Sound Studio. 
you know, it's the same kind of world. It's the same kind of tone and approach. It's, you know, same period of filmmaking and same area of filmmaking. But it's, you know, Barbarian Sound Studio was so damn well made and very well acted, but it just kind of left me cold. Um, you know, I love Toby Jones in that film, but uh, and I like Strickland stuff quite a bit. But, you know, the movie kind of keeps you at arm's length and, you know, censor does not, you know, censor censor pulls you in close. It gives you a big hug and then it guts you. Anna. Yeah. I'm excited to see it. Love it. Love it so much. I have films to see. Yes, my list is ever growing. And then I'll probably just watch my crazy random old movies on Blu-ray and then get yelled at for not watching the new ones. That's that's my MO. Hey, hey, I never yelled. I, I tissed. You're There's right. a difference. I'm sorry. He's not mad. He's just disappointed. Right. He he yeah. uses like the the a parental sense of guilt to to really really I, just I make me feel bad. I don't I don't know if that's fully accurate because you're right. On the one hand, it's it. You know what? What kind of perfectly describes my 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 feelings on it is like you know, Paul. Mm-hmm. I'm not angry. I'm just uh-huh. disappointed. Yeah. But all but also I am angry. Okay. <laughs> well. I appreciate I, all of the emotions you're throwing my way. All of them. It's I'm good. kidding. Allie, how about you? What else have you seen this past two weeks, I guess I should say? Um, oh, my God. This is one of those moments where I'm like, I've watched a ton of movies, and now in my brain I'm like, you haven't seen a single film in three years. Like, what are you doing? This is why I have a letterboxed account so I can, like, remember what I see. Uh, no pressure whatsoever, but also I'm pushing a mic at you right now. Yeah. Uh, I watched a lot of trash TV. I just found out that the first season of Beauty and the Geek from like 2006 is on Amazon Prime, and rewatching it, I'm like, oof, this is a cringy show. <laughs> I've never heard of that. <laughs> it's a stupid, stupid reality show. Don't don't invest your time or I remember it. that. Wow, that's a blast from the past. <laughs> um, oh, I just for the first time, and like that's, I should have watched this many years before. I just saw Blowout for the first time, the Brian oh. De Palma and John Travolta movie. Yeah, good stuff. Like, oh, that was good. Like everything about that movie was great. Like just Travolta, Lithgow, like uh, Karen Allen. Yeah. That was- final shot of her, like Travolta. Uh, sort of holding her and the spin around and the fireworks like that. That movie is, I don't use this phrase often because I, yeah, it's just because, but yeah, pure cinema. Like I adore it. Pure cinema. And and plus, like the ending where he's just sitting in the sound booth and they finally get the scream right. And he's like almost in tears being like, it's good scream. It's good scream. <laughs> and he's like, Oh no, it's you loved her. And he still, that's the thing that kills me about that movie is like, he loved her and he's obviously like, you know, devastated, but he still exploited her final moments, you know? Yeah. Like he let her, but that way she was able to, you know, live on. But like, oh, it was a, it was a hard scene. And I'm just like, damn you, Travolta. Like, (laughs) how do you go from making Travolta. (laughs) But how do you go from making these amazing movies and then doing like, Battlefield Earth and the fanatic. 
Uh, Battlefield. I previewed Battlefield Earth when it came out. I was looking forward to that movie. Like, there was so much hype behind it. And uh, that's a movie, you know, you get 10 minutes into it, you realize the mistake you've made. Yeah. We did, I will say, at the movie theater, I was only an usher at the time. And we uh, we would frighten uh, patrons by just walking through the hallways, bouncing from auditorium to auditorium with uh, brooms and scoops in our hands, laughing like Travolta does in that movie. Just, uh, <laughs> let's go, gang. Let's go ahead and clean auditorium number seven. Ha 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 Travolta. Terrible, terrible. Yeah, Blowout is amazing. I've never seen the uh, Antonioni movie that Blowout was meant to be either riffing on or remaking. Is it called Blow Up, I think? Oh, I didn't know. Oh, I have Blow Up on uh, Criterion. Yeah. That's a, that's, a, that's a good movie. I need to get some Criterion sales stuff in before the sale is over because uh, I'm a glutton for punishment and can't stop buying movies. I've been, I've been taking it easy on the Criterion sale this time around. But I, but then again, I already own a lot of the ones I want. But I, I picked up like... um. I picked up Bringing Up Baby um, and The Parallax View and, oh gosh, I think I ordered something else. Deep Cover, maybe? Oh, nice. Yeah, which <laughs> is not a movie that I expected to get a Criterion release, but now that it has one, I'm like, you're damn right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Why not that movie? Yeah. <laughs> um, I snagged some uh, Linklater stuff that I needed to upgrade the Criterion. I, uh, yeah, I saw you picked up Slackers. I picked up Slacker, I picked up um, Dazed and Confused, and I picked up uh, Boyhood, which I have not yet seen. Solid movie. See, I love Boyhood. I know some people were sort of like, meh, on Boyhood. But I thought Boyhood was like a masterpiece. I I, I just, I really, I was so moved by it. Like, when you get to the ending, and and it's not because it, it reaches some sort of grand conclusion about life. It's just the emotional impact of watching people grow like in such a compact amount of time is so relatable, you know, like as a human being, it's just, I don't know how you could watch that movie and not relate to it on some level. If you've gone through adolescence, either, either as a parent or just as a person. Um, And I found it just, and a very rewarding experience of a film. Maybe not one I'm going to watch a whole lot, but one that I thought was a very, very special piece of work. Can I share something with the two of you? I know we're running a little bit long here, but this is a story. I don't, <laughs> I don't know that I've, Street yet. <laughs> I don't know that I've, I've told this story before on this podcast. I don't know if I've told it before anywhere, but uh, you talked about watching people grow, Paul. It reminded me. I, when I was a teenager, I was probably 16 or 17. I worked for a videographer in a little uh, town called Ironton, Ohio. And I was, I was working one day and he was just giving me busy work. And he was like, Hey, if you can just take these and like, you know, he set up a video camera he's like, look, I just need to capture all of these. And then I'll, you know, I'll, I'll work them into my edit later. He was doing this big project for this family that I don't know, was doing kind of a documentary about their grandparents and so he handed me this massive stack of photographs. And we're talking all different types, like different sizes, going all the way back to like, you know, brittle black and white prints to, you know, glossy, you know, uh, um, uh, Kodaks that somebody would have gotten from their local Walmart. And it started out with these pictures of this little boy and then this little girl. 
And I just, I, and somebody had shuffled them in this perfect order. And so I just kept setting these photographs out in front of the camera and you see the boy grow and you see the girl grow and you know, they're, they're five years, they're babies. And then they're five years old and they're 10 years old, you know, uh, they're Christmas pictures, then they're teenagers. And then they're like 19 or 20 and they have their first picture together. And then from that point on, you watch them as a married couple, you know, going photo to photo. And then they're like candids with them hanging out. And then the birth of their child and then their family grows. And it takes it was it was this weirdly sort of like I I became so engrossed in it. It was this weirdly moving thing where I watched over the course of an hour and a half working on this project. These two people start out as literal babies all the way to the point where they were in like their 80s you know, and, uh, near the end. And it was just kind of like this moving thing where I watched an entire life, you know, unfold in front of me, you know, uh, just from stills, you know, and I, so that's one reason I've been interested to watch boyhood, you know, because I, I love that somebody was able to kind of tap into that, but just, you know, for a film, I, I, I love that idea. And Linklater is somebody who, I love the risks that he takes in, in those sorts of ways. Um, and it's one of the reasons that I love the, the before series, you know, the idea of catching up with this couple every nine years, although I was heartbroken to find out that apparently they're not doing anymore. Uh, they had gotten together to see if they can hammer out a story idea for another follow-up because it will be nine years since before was it before midnight. Maybe was yeah, the last before- one. Um, it'll be nine years next year, which blows my mind. I didn't realize we had gotten that far down the road, but they realized that they had no more story to tell. And so that's it. That's, you know, and to me, I, I was kind of hoping they would do the Michael Apted thing where they would just carry through until old age, you know, with that couple. And, you know, maybe they'll pick those characters up again down the road, but as it is right now, we're not getting another installment next year, which is kind of a bummer because, because I love them. I love both of those characters. Mm -hmm. I would rather them not do it if they don't think they have, you know, a compelling reason to do it. You know what I mean? I agree. I agree. At the same time, I hope it's not the last time that we see those characters. You know, if they feel the need to, you know, if for whatever reason they're holding themselves to nine years, you know, uh, between every installment and they didn't have anything this time. You know what? Maybe another nine years from now, 10 years from now, maybe they'll realize that, oh, we have something to say now, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, because I'd like to, uh, I'd like to see those characters as much older people to see, you know, kind of, uh, kind of where life took them. (laughs) Anyway, sorry. This podcast is getting very whimsical. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Where are we at right now? Who's, who's next? Who's up? Paul, is it you? I'm sorry. I feel like at this point we should probably just talk about Fear Street because we've been going for about an hour. There was one or two I wanted to plug, but let's go into Fear Street. Okay, before we do that, I just want to say one last thing. It'll take five seconds. I did rewatch Dracula Dead and Loving It. Uh, and, oh, my God, I did too. <laughs> it's it's just a damn delight. So. I, I don't need to rewatch it because it just lives rent-free in my brain. So I, <laughs> I rewatch it all the time. I Every time I close my eyes, I rewatch Dracula Dead and Loving It. <laughs> love it, love it, love it. It is so good. <laughs> it is it is a thing of beauty that is perfect in every way. Yeah, I, I adore it. I really do. Um, okay, so are we going to dive into Fear Street? Now, Paul, you said that all of us watched it. I just wanted to double check. Allie, have you seen the Fear Street movies? Heck yeah. I used to read the Fear Street books. Now I'm watching the movies. I love it. I love all the R.L. Stein content. 
Okay, good deal. I I have just I I've been updating Paul daily on my ever growing uh, R.L. Stein collection. I have the first three Fear Street paperbacks, like vintage, and I just picked up the first Goosebumps, but I've not read any of them yet. So I'm I'm looking forward to diving in at some point. But Paul, let yeah. us know what you thought of uh let's know what you thought of 1994. Well, um, to to your point, I I am an avid R.L. Stein fan. Um, I have a massive collection of books. Uh, I have many, many leather bound books like, like Ron Burgundy. Uh, no, not that that Uh, makes me, (laughs) not that that makes me any more special of a fan than anyone else, but it just, it just shows that I really was very excited to, to watch, uh, these movies. Um, and yeah, I, I adored, I mean, we'll start with part one. I, I adored Fear Street 1994, um, you know, I, I, throughout all the discourse and everything, I mean, I know a lot of people saw this, this movie early through like screeners and stuff. Like I saw it when it came out. Um, I watched it with a group of friends locally and it just, it just, for lack of a better word, it killed man. Like everybody, everybody there loved it. We jumped at the right moments. We laughed at the right moments. Um, the, the scream DNA that ran through this movie was so strong and welcome. It didn't feel derivative at all. It felt, it felt like a logical extension of, of that type of post eighties slasher sensibility. Like it really did feel like it could take place in the nineties. I know some people complained about like the needle drops and the music selection. I actually thought that was wonderful Uh. and only added to the, nostalgia uh of the movie and i think that's just to me when i hear that it just feels like something somebody's looking to complain about something about this awesome movie so um, um, the kill, excuse me excuse me sir um, the kills this were, movie takes place in 1994 but that song did not come out until yeah, 95 screw screw, screw yeah, that all, was all, that everyone had a problem with <laughs> yeah like all the haters can just should go away um the it, font it, yeah. on that message board was not available until 1998 <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it, yeah oh man and the opening mall sequence was just so great and it was so reminiscent of the opening to scream the score kind of had scream elements to it um all of the performances were great i loved seeing sort of a, a queer relationship at the center of the movie but it wasn't like exploitative in any way it was just a, a very natural interesting way to sort of handle that relationship um i i i really did love everything about this movie like i will be absolutely shocked if at the end of the year the fear street trilogy does not top like my favorite horror experience of the year oh paul though you're 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 counting on the fact yep exactly (laughs) okay okay you're, you're I, ha- I forgot I movie. haven't seen the super petty Megan Fox Chained to a Dead Body movie. I take it back. I can't make that call until I see it. But I'm pretty sure it will at least be one or two then. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so, so, but the thing is, though, is, is I have my hopes up for the third installment. But at the same time, like... I'm braced for the possibility that after two really wonderful installments, the third one might not be able to live up to it because it's given me, you know, I was telling somebody about it. Like it's given me some ginger snaps back vibes and I'm like, you know, I really love ginger snaps and ginger snaps unleashed, but you know, by the time you get the snaps back, you know, um, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm proven wrong. And I think that I will be, 
Um, not that I think it's going to be bad. I'm hoping that it's going to be great, but I, I do feel a little bit better about the possibility of it being a great movie uh, by virtue of the fact that it's the same filmmaker you know, who, who did the first two. You know, I love the idea that you have this trilogy that has been guided by the same creative hand. Yeah. Uh, so that, that makes me feel better well, about I, it. I, th- I think that's that's one of the le- – I mean, this trilogy should be teaching the industry a ton of lessons about how to handle slasher films and long-form story. Like, let one creative tell the big story, right? Like, let – Give them the money to do it. Allow it to have a wider scope. Allow it to have like a deeper mythology. I love the infusing of the Sarah Fear stuff, um, which is which is mythos from the Fear Street books. Yep. Um, you know the Sarah Fear thing ran throughout the Cheerleaders saga, which is like a super good saga, and the, which would also make a great uh, movie trilogy. By the way, if they want to do like additional Fear Street stories, adapt the the Cheerleader stuff. Um, but. No, I just, yeah, in part two, um, you know, not to jump, I mean, we can just talk about them both together. I, I also loved part two in different ways. Um, you know, I loved, like, part two was a much more, like, there was a brutality to part two that did feel more in line with the stuff we got in the 70s. It, like, like to me, each movie was sort of trying to fit in stylistically to where horror was when that sort of time period is taking place. Um, and I also liked how part two really just went deep on the mythology, um, and unafraid to go into really extreme, interesting directions, um, was sort of the supernatural elements of it all, uh, while giving us a very brutal camp slasher with like literal children dying, which most of our hardest core slashers don't do or won't even get close to, um, I just think these movies so far have been a true gift to horror fans. Um, and I just feel really lucky to be a fan of horror right now and getting to experience it them as they're happening. Allie, how about you? What did you think of them? You, you've read the books as well. How did, how did they strike you? Uh, I was so happy when they announced it just because like, these were the books that I read in like, when I was a child, so I was so excited to see it, like, yes, you're finally going to put it on the screen, and also, they're going to do it justice in the way that they didn't do with the Goosebumps movie, which, nothing against it. Careful, but careful, sucks. Allie. It's fighting words for Paul. I'm just going <laughs> to... Like, uh, what happens it's okay. It should have been an anthology or a TV show, like how it was, you know, way back when, and just updated it, but, like, Oh, the movies, I love Jack Black, don't get me wrong, I think he's he's owns a little piece of my heart, but I thought they sucked, so I really was so happy, and I also wasn't expecting it to be, like, as violent and as gory as it was, especially, like, right in the opening scene of the first one, yes. but I mean, I am always here for, like, A, anything that happens in a mall in the 80s or in the 90s, and then also a summer camp movie. Like, yeah. those are my favorite tropes next to body swap movies. But, like, that's a different thing. But I thought it was great. And, yeah, I agree. Like, a lot of horror films really don't want to kill children. And I get <laughs> I get why. But also, like, it, it brings way more emotion when you murder a child. 
Yeah. It's funny that we're talking about this right before Vampire Circus. Just throwing that out there. Yeah. <laughs> child death. This is a good yeah. segue. Child death, yes. This is a good segue. <laughs> I um I, I I loved them both. I really did. I um I but I will say out of the two, like I think nineteen ninety-four feels like a complete film. To me, you know, I mean, obviously there's mythology that's introduced. There are a few dangling threads that are left behind. To me, it knocked it out of the park. It felt like, you know, it just the, the, the bullshit nitpicking aside, it feels like a movie that was made in the night. Not just a movie that's, you know, look, I love Stranger Things, but Stranger Things is very much a modern series that plays on our nostalgia and casts back to another time in the 80s. And, uh, yeah. you know, but there's no mistaking what time period the stranger things is made in watching fear street 1994 it felt like it was made in that maybe not in 94 it feels like it definitely would have been a post scream movie but by god it feels like it is a movie that was made back in the 90s and was just simply preserved for the last 25 years and i i just absolutely adored it it, it hit me and that's kind of what hit me as far as the nostalgia goes, is the fact that it felt authentic in that way. And um, Paul, I, I, like everything both of you are saying, I agree with entirely. I just, I, I adored the characters. I adored the world. I loved the style. I love that they brought in friggin' Marco Beltrami to do a scream riff, you know, for the score. Um, I was grinning ear to ear watching the thing the entire time through. 1978, I really liked but it wasn't the home run for me that 1994 was. And I saw, it's funny, I saw a lot of people arguing online. Like some people thought 94 was, you know, so much better and 78 was terrible. Or people thought that 94 wasn't that great, but that 78 was amazing, you know. And me, I was like, you know, as much as I adore 94, I still think 78 is a superior slasher. Like it is one of the best, you know, that's, that's the closest thing we've gotten to a Friday the 13th movie in over a damn decade. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. I, and I, I really dug it. It just, to me, maybe the thing that disappointed me, you know, it just, I love 94 so much. I don't think the 78 had much of a chance. And I think being honest, nostalgia certainly plays into that. I will say that another factor is the fact that, you know, some people were complaining that 94 didn't have a massive body count. And to me, I was completely fine with that because it allowed us to get invested in the characters so much more. I don't think 78 has that. But also being fair, I don't think that was 78's aim. You know, if 94 is meant to be, you know, kind of a throwback to Scream, then of course we're going to spend the bulk of the movie getting to know the characters before terrible things happen to them. If 78 is meant to be a throwback to more old school slashers, then of course it's just going to be a yeah. body count flick, you know? Right. And I get that. But I got to be honest about which one was more engaging to me as a result, and it was definitely 94. Plus, out of the two, I will say that, again, dangling threads aside, 94 felt much more like a complete film, whereas 78 was like, well, this is clearly a miniseries installment. You know what I mean? It, it didn't feel as freestanding as the first movie, and maybe that's you know a bizarre complaint to lodge against it, but... Nevertheless, that's one of the things that hit me after watching it. Nevertheless, it also feels like I'm kind of nitpicking because otherwise I thought it was a blast. I love them both, and I really hope the third movie just sticks to the landing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, they were both home runs. Um, I, I get what you're saying. And, and fully admit that, like, I am one of those people that, like, if I love something and I'm predisposed to love it, I'm probably just going to love it. I'm, <laughs> I overlook a lot. I'm cool with that, like... 
I hear what you're saying, Ellie, about the Goosebumps movies. I know a lot of people feel that way. For me, I, I love them <laughs> unapologetically. And like, go, it's super cheesy, and I still love it, even though it's like, yeah, yeah. like it's, it's, it's a weird it's thing. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't yeah. like say, oh, you're wrong. Like, they're great. No, I, it's more like, I totally respect like what you're saying, and I totally agree that like there are other ways to do those movies that probably would have made me even happier. But at the same time, it's just so I'm just so happy to get almost anything of this stuff that like I just kind of find ways of wrapping my my brain around it. And it's hard for me to separate like that love from what I'm seeing. So if it taps into that at all in any sort of successful way for me, then I just kind of love the movie around it. Um, and and so for these Fear Street movies, I do agree, Jenks, that the second one and I think I talked to you about that is the, the second one felt a bit like like a like an episode of Sherlock or something where it's like, oh, it's a movie. <laughs> it's 90 minutes, but it feels very much like previously on Fear Street and exactly. the stuff that happened. And now it's bookended by the stuff in 94, which makes it feel less a slightly less standalone movie. But that's also just indicative of what happens when you when you purposefully make a trilogy. Right. Because you could argue that about Back to the Future, too. Oh, it's totally um, the two. You know what I mean? But I still think Back to the Future 2 is like its own movie. Um, and I think in like years to come, when we go back to these movies, I think they will feel a little bit more substantial on their own. And I think we'll we'll get I think the farther I think it's almost like a weird thing, because like when in our lives have we ever watched a new trilogy as it's coming out, digesting it right away within a three week period? That's just never happened. You know, like, so not at least not that I could think of. Um, so I think that's also just we're, we're all sort of like live digesting this stuff and not having the multiple years to sit on these movies and sort of like come to terms with what we think about them and watch them multiple times. So I'm I'm more interested in like a five year retrospective of this trilogy almost than I am in the discourse that's happening right now, because I think it's all too sort of everyone. Everyone wants to have a hot take on these movies because they're the popular thing. Um, so I'm I'm a lot less interested in that than I am in just how much I love them. <laughs> so I'm kind of ignoring that discourse for the most part. I, I will say it'll be curious to see, you know, when the next movie comes out, I'm going to try and do a triple feature and just watch them all back to back to back. And much like, yeah. you know, I feel the same way about or I rather I felt the same way about the two towers when it came out. You know, I loved Fellowship of the Ring. I Return of the King I adored, but the two towers felt kind of like glue to me you know tying the which is funny because that was always together. it's funny to bring that up because that one jinx was always my favorite real <laughs> <laughs> yes two towers was easily hands down my favorite of the three from the from the start it was my favorite but, but fear street is better than all three of those movies so yeah y'all are a bunch of <laughs> <laughs> the needle oh. drops in uh lord of the rings is just way too much for me <laughs> Um, excuse me, this music is from 2001, clearly long after the point when these movies would have been. I could not believe some of those takes. I'm like, don't watch a Tarantino movie. It's going to drive you crazy. Yeah, the rest I, I, know, I know we're probably about to go on to the commentary proper, but can I just drop real quick uh, a recommendation for a 2001 horror movie I saw this week? I, I won't go into it. I just want to drop a rec. Drop it. Cool? Do it. Okay, The Hole from 2001. Yes! Yeah, good. That movie. fucking movie is so good. 
Did that so intense. Because everyone has been talking about it recently, so I had to rewatch it. And like, I fucking love that movie. Yeah, I I don't know if I did it, but I I'd like to think I did that. <laughs> oh, you need to get one of those notifications. It's like I you started I'm this trend. pretty sure. <laughs> like, it, it did blow up on Twitter, and I'm like, I, it I did blow up I, on Twitter. I think I did that. I don't know if I did it. I'm not gonna like totally take credit for it, but like, I'm pretty sure I did that because the reason I watched it was I heard about it on a podcast that was from like six years ago. Because I was going back and listening to old pod- This is how weird I am. I, like, if there's a show I like, I go back and find old episodes, and they talked about it on like a really old podcast. So I found it on Paramount Plus. Uh, and and watched it. So yeah, it's streaming on Paramount Plus. And is my it? God, that movie is so gnarly and and mean and interesting and and just fucking great across the board. I don't want st- to. I don't want to say much about it because I think like the ride of watching that movie is part of why it's great. Like a synopsis would almost be too much of a spoiler, um, because. But also, it's from like. 20 years ago if you haven't seen it yeah yeah but like i really want people to check this thing out and like discover it it's just so it's incredibly disturbing but it's also got that sort of like weird fun tinge of like you know that dimension style early 2000s horror which uh yeah it's it's a uk film um really 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 well done uh it's starring thora birch and kira knightley um yeah, it's it's great. So if you have Paramount Plus, go watch it that way. It's probably available on VOD as well. Um, but yes, it is deserving of the discourse that is happening. I tried to look it up right now on Paramount Plus, and apparently in Canada, our Paramount Plus is just TV shows. Really? That yeah. is interesting. Well, okay, yeah, weird. But. But being fair, the trade-off is the fact that you all have much better health care. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, that's a good trade-off. <laughs> I'm willing. I, I am willing to trade movies for better. Uh, yeah. For better health care. <laughs> Just in case. Yeah. I, uh, no, it's. I, I, I haven't seen that movie in ages, but I remember really, really digging it. Um. I, uh, you know, Ali, I think you and I might have talked about this briefly on Twitter, but you mentioned Desmond Harrington. Like, oh, that, that's a guy that seemed poised to sort of break out big time in the early aughts. Like, he was putting in all of these great appearances in any number of different types of movies. Like, he, he, he would show up in Wrong Turn as the lead, but then he would have a supporting role in The Hole. But then he would do, like, this great romantic comedy called My First Mister that Christine Lottie directed with, uh, yeah. that, uh, oh, my God, I've forgotten her name, um, from uh, uh, Joyride. Why can I not remember her name? Um Nicholas Cage punches her out. Lily Sobieski, thank you. Uh, and he was great in that, you know. And then he played the villain in spoilers for a twenty-year-old movie, but he was the villain in Ghost Ship. And then, uh, you know, he even scored one of the 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 major leads in Dexter, you know, during the back half of that series. And he's a guy who always showed up, who always, you know, put in a great performance. He's a good working actor. He, he's, yeah. Totally, yes. but did it not seem like he was a guy that should have broken out and been more of an A-lister, perhaps, than he wound up being? Like, and I'm not knocking him for that. I just that's one of those things where you wonder. It's like, why did it never happen? You know, for that guy. My whole thing with Desmond Harrington, like, I 
adore him. I think he's great. I've always thought he was great. But every character he plays, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's him in real life. Like, <laughs> if he's the weird, awkward photographer in Neon Demon, I'm like, oh, yeah, I could see him, you know, making a girl get naked and painting her. Or he's like the racist cop in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I'm like, yeah, I could see that. <laughs> or the creepy necrophile in uh, Love Object, which is a... Yeah. That's a vastly under... Paul, if you haven't seen Love Object, talk about underseen movies. Like, check that out, man. I have not seen that. No, I, I like him. He kind of gives me, like, early Christian Bale vibes a little bit. Like, and I think that might also be the problem, is, like, Christian Bale sort of became big, and he's kind of, like, a little bit too much like Christian Bale to be different enough. <laughs> in terms Christian of Christian Bale was from, like, the hard streets in New York. Like, for sure, yeah. He's like Christian Bale from Newsies. If that character yeah. had just like grown up and been he's, who Christian Bale became. He's, he's Christian Bale, but he actually would have trashed the fucking lights. So, uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, would he have been a better Batman is the question. Would he be the superior Batman? Well, you know, it's, it's funny. Like I, I think it would have, ta- you know, it's funny if you had just moved his career back about 10 years you know, it seems like, or forward rather, it seems like he likely would have been queued up to have been plucked away from, you know, not obscurity, but kind of the career he had been building in the early aughts and would have probably been thrown into one of those superhero roles and that likely would have boosted him, you know, in the yeah. early aughts. There wasn't much yeah. in the way of that, but, you know, now I don't know that that'll happen, but I, I think he could totally pull it off. Um, yeah. But also, I kind of don't want that to ha- like, I want him to be successful, but I don't want him to be superhero successful. No, no. I don't really want any actor I like to be superhero successful. Right? Like, <laughs> they I just kind of, they disappear, because they disappear into the MCU forever, <laughs> and you never see them again. Well, and then when they come out, they're fucking Dr. Doolittle, and it's like, I don't want that. Oh, like, yeah. you know, it's just... It, yeah, it's... you you are right about that. Oh I mean, my they... god, I just realized that, that was Robert Downey Jr. I'm like, what are you talking about? Eddie Murphy was never in those movies. <laughs> you take uh, you take Robert Downey Jr. like pre MCU, he was, he was doing awesome. like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, yeah. and yeah. One, uh, uh, and then you good night, then he's good Iron Man and... for a thousand years, and then he comes out and he's he's Doctor Doolittle, and and yeah. what we don't have that guy anymore, and I, I worry about a lot of those actors who disappear into the MCU. Now, at, on the other hand, you get someone like you know, Chris Evans who comes out and he's playing in knives out and he's great and wearing sweaters. And he also does a lot of weird, like underground, not indie shit, but like lesser known stuff that really works. But he also started with like not another teen movie. So this guy was on the level to begin with. You know what I mean? Like he, he was on the level from the get go. So we should have known. Yeah. I could not take him seriously. Even after not another teen movie and the fantastic. That's a great comedy, by the way. That's one of the only one of the only ones that are like those movie movies that was really, really good. I remember he was the one reason I expected Danny Boyle's sunshine to suck or to at least be weak. And then you watch that movie and it's like, oh, he's he's actually really great. Oh, he's a good actor. Yeah, he's a good actor. He's great. He's one of the best Chris's. Not the best. He might be the best. I'm sorry. I, okay, okay. I will say this. Uh, yeah, see, it's tough. Like Hemsworth, no, but I love it's him. It's pine. It's pine. It, no, it's exactly. Pine. I was gonna say. I was it gonna say pine. pine. 
Or it's is Chris Pratt before he went to Marvel? Like it's Pratt Chris Yeah, Pratt, Pratt has fallen off, fallen far for me. I There was a time where Pratt was in contention. Mm-hmm. But that that time has long since passed. <laughs> but, is that, but is that in any way connected to the quality of his work, or is it just that weird sort of like noise around like, which I still it to me it feels like people have tried to cancel him without. Weirdness. Yeah, people have tried to cancel him, but without really providing any. Well, he's a he's a Tom Cruiseian figure in that way, where his his personal ideologies are bizarre, and therefore they bleed into the media and extreme sound bites and then we make judgments about his character based on those bites but there's enough of those other like he's a whole other thing there's a whole podcast called meeting tom cruise that people just go on the show and tell you stories about how they met tom cruise (laughs) (laughs) they're all insane stories luckily there's not a lot of other toms for him to be in competition with though like chris pratt there's so many Chris's that a just a few missteps can can dethrone you pretty easily. Yeah. You know what? Where the hell <laughs> is Chris Pine's Marvel role? That's what I want to know. Like, what, I'm what's, good what's with him there? not being over there, man. We just went he over this. Star Trek. He, he has Star Trek, Trek. and okay. he's good, and that's good shit. He's yeah. Where, Star, Star Trek, Trek is great. Is where shit. is it? Where is it? I know. Where's we Star need Trek? a fourth. I agree. I agree. We need a fourth just, Star Trek. He, he tried being Jack Ryan. It was directed by Kenneth fucking Brana. It was great. And nobody went to go see it. You know, that yeah, sucks. I, I'm saying that guy probably wouldn't sneeze at an MCU role right now, especially considering that that studio is no longer, uh, I guess, requiring their actors to be signed up for like six or nine movies all at once, which is good. So, um, yeah, we are an hour and 24 minutes into this Vampire Circus <laughs> commentary. This, this last, <laughs> this last 15 minutes. On my end. We have now beaten the time for the longest uh, pre-commentary conversation, I think previously held by Reina Cervantes, I think it was an hour and a quarter. So, uh... (laughs) Allie, good job. I'm very proud of you. Well done. Let's get petty about this. Let's get petty. (laughs) Let's shoot shoot some vague uh, tweets out about it. All right. So, everyone listening out there... um, Paul and I, uh, you know, a handful of episodes back, we started toying with the idea of reading off a synopsis for the movie we were going to discuss. And then we kind of dropped it because we had a run of Frankenstein and Dracula movies there. And really, we don't need to synopsize those because, you know, Frankenstein stitches together body parts. uh, Things go bad and he never learns his lesson. And, uh, you know, Dracula does Dracula shit. So, but... This time, we are actually covering Vampire Circus, which regrettably, sadly, is not necessarily one of the better-known horror films that Hammer did. So I'm going to read off kind of a plot synopsis that I stitched together from a couple of synopses I found on IMDb. A quarantined 19th century village named Steddle is visited by a mysterious traveling circus willing to take the villagers' minds off of the plague. Children begin to disappear, with the locals suspecting that the circus troop might be hiding behind a horrifying secret connected to a long-ago massacre from Steddle's past. Does that, that sound right? That sound about, you know, does that pretty much cover it? That's about it. Basic setup. So, okay. All right. So everybody out there, as with every episode, um, (laughs) if you're just listening to this as though it's a normal podcast, carry on. However, 
If you're going to be watching with us, go ahead and choose your media of choice. Now, uh, I believe Synapse put out a Blu-ray a good decade or so ago, if you want to use that. Or, currently, Vampire Circus is going to be playing on Shudder, which is pretty nice. So I tell you what, let's everybody go ahead and queue up to the first frame of the movie proper. Uh, If you're watching the Blu-ray, you'll probably have to get through some... uh, some pre-title stuff you know i don't know if studio canal did the restoration who knows but let's get to the very first frame of the movie just as it starts to fade in on a big muscular dude banging a gong and paul ali are you all ready yeah i got the muscular dude and the gong i got i got the yep i got mr muscles and gonna watch this for a while yeah he's he's gonna he's gonna wail on this gong so i'm ready all right let's press play in five four three two one and play okay here we do sound effects for the whole movie yes just anytime a sound effect needs to be played the rank academy so do all the effects (laughs) yeah like that guy from police academy a hammer production now can i ask you all like the opening of this movie I hadn't seen this movie in a while. It's not a Hammer movie that I revisit often, even though I do like it quite a bit. But I got to admit, I had kind of forgotten what the deal was with this lengthy opening prologue. Were you all like me in that you thought that he was chasing after the young girl as though she were his daughter, as opposed to chasing after the adult woman who was, in fact, his wife? Was that just me, or? I have like easily like four or five times with Chris and every single time I'm like I've never seen this before and then we watch it and I'm like oh my god I've seen this a couple of times like I clearly never remember it when we watch it even now I'm like who are these people what's happening I I assumed it was his family like his wife and daughter or something um but you know what strikes me like watching this movie for because this is my first time watch I had never seen this um and this whole opening extended sequence one, I was surprised at how long and involved it was for an opening to a Hammer movie. It kind of feels like a whole condensed Hammer movie. I mean, you get enough sex and violence in this sequence that would really fill out an entire movie back in the day for them. Um, and the other thing that struck me about it is it feels very Captain Chronosy. Yeah. Ooh, it like yeah. easily, easily could have been in canon with that movie. Yeah, and might be. You never know. Maybe they consider that at some point. Yeah. I, I'm still waiting for the HCU. Um, no, I, I. it's just such a weird opening because you wonder, like, did he already have concerns about his wife? You know, was was there any right. sort of inkling as yes. to... Because... Uh, concerns about your wife. <laughs> he, I mean, his would have been well-founded. Um, and Why I'd would she be, like, taking a strange girl into a castle that isn't hers? You know, like if if her wife if his wife wasn't up to something. Yeah, well, I mean, you would imagine if he'd. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Al. I just meant like that's a casual thing that any woman does. Oh my god, I love the really fast cut of him just being there. Uh, I I forgot to do the sound effect, like the. (laughs) It's very. It's a very bewitched effect. (laughs) Also, that is a. Super deep V, like that dude yeah. is V in that. Dude. Count Mitterhouse, which is uh that's a that's a really busy 
name for a vampire. It's a really fussy vampire name, I think. Look at him, though. I mean, it's like, a look fussy shirt and necklace, too, while we're at it. Well, let's talk about the man's hair while we're going full bore. Like, I mean, come on, Mitterhouse. What does it not look like? He's the lead singer of a Beatles cover band, like at a, at like a dive bar. <laughs> okay, can we can we talk about this disturbing as hell moment where there's a look? Yeah, of this is rough. Absolute ecstasy on Anna's face here as a little girl is uh killed. Like that's that's truly disturbing. Like sexuality plus violence can be shocking enough. Yeah, given the context, but. Then to introduce a child, child into that mix? Yeah, that's... You You can really tell that at this point, Hammer was just throwing everything at the wall. Like, violence, sexuality, anything goes, versus, you know, their, their sort of previous uh, attempt to make things more subtle. This movie is the opposite of subtle. <laughs> What's that? People aren't watching our movies anymore? Well, let's just give them all the blood and sex. Let's give them a vampire circus. <laughs> I love Having this said argument that, I should just say, I, I, I do love this movie, by the way. I'm not wow. complaining about it at all. I think it's great. No, it is funny that when I was rewatching it, I was like, you know, I really respect this movie, but it's going to be fun poking holes at it you know in it like it's just i do it lovingly but uh it's a, it's a fun movie it's a fun movie in any number of ways but uh yeah no there's just nudity right off the bat here and i'm wondering is this is this the first time nudity was used in like a fully sexual context in 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 hammer's run like is this the first time because well, you know before vampire we lovers had, yeah, I was going to say Vampire Lovers, maybe. Oh, you're right. I forgot yeah. because we skipped that one. Damn it. Okay. Yeah. Well, now I just look like a jackass. Ah, the movies. <laughs> okay. So, huh? Paul and I had this conversation text-wise. <laughs> Allie, chime in here. Let us know what you think. Is this a sex scene? Like, is this sex? Like, this is very. She's lying one way, and he's like perpendicular to her as he just rolls on her. Like, it's it's very rolling around. Maybe it's like sex. Maybe vampires can have like osmosis sex, where you just kind of put your bodies together, and then you know something's <laughs> exchanging between the two. I don't. Maybe it's a vampire thing. I mean, stuff probably brushed up against stuff. Yeah, possibly. You don't know. Who knows? Uh, it's Sex weird. is definitely implied by the scene. I mean, she yeah. she seems happy. You know what? I she think seems that happy. was just their way of kind of like, ooh. I, and also, this was a first-time director who, like, for, by all accounts, from what I was reading, really didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> yeah. was, that That sex scene is, like, it's very madman hot tub scene. You know, just lots of naked rolling around. And uh yeah. But it's like what is what are they trying to do there? Did oh they my gosh, Jinx, you should you should totally do a cut of that scene with the Mad Men theme over it. Oh, <laughs> that would be oh, super oh, funny. Oh. That would go viral <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> okay, now this is a pretty intense a... action sequence. Yeah, sex scene to bloodshed, just like boom, mm-hmm. like it's nothing. This is this Very movie is telling you this. This is Hammer not fucking around at all at this point. Yeah, you know people's no, necks being slit. <laughs> now, Ali, what was your uh, what was your first? Oh, did he really just stab him in the groin there? Like I, 
with a stake, and did it really not affect him at all? Well, no, he's a vampire. Yeah. He stab yeah. yeah. But you think he would at least... It'll win. just grow back. It grows back. It's like that Simpsons episode where Mr. Burns is a vampire and Homer goes to stake him, and Lisa's just like, Dad, that's his crotch. Okay, so this is just weird to me where so children in this town had gone missing the town knew that it was plagued you know the 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 town itself was plagued by evil but it took a dude getting cuckolded before anything would be done about this damn vampire like i that sounds that's that just explains it all like there's Stuff. Yeah, I do. I do love a movie that's based on a creepy prophecy. I always think that's cool. Yeah, this is this is pretty exploitative, like nudity at, at that point where he just like rips her hair back and just holds her there. It's a little. There, there's some uh, patriarchal uh, tendencies, leanings that are guiding the hand of this film at times. You know, it's weird. We have this scene coming up. Like, obviously, uh, he he comes out with a child. He passes the child along to the father. You know, the father wants to knife Anna, as it were. And it's kind of like, okay, no, we're going to restrain him. We're going to keep him from actually knifing her. But but what are we going to do about this woman? And then you turn and see, like, all of the villagers have kind of stood on either side, and they're hefting all these different tools and implements and whatnot. And you realize she's going to have to run a gauntlet. I I couldn't help but be reminded of that scene from Airplane, where the line of folks were waiting to attack the hysterical woman with, like, a variety of weapons, like, you know, <laughs> hefting the wrench in their hands, you know? Like, am I the only one who thought that? Like, Leslie oh, yeah. Nielsen deserved to be in there somewhere. I mean, I'm never going to argue with that. Horror comedy, he can do it all. <laughs> Leslie Nielsen should have been like the third. It should have been Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and Leslie Nielsen. Yes. It really should have. And could you imagine, like, when Prom Night came out, then it would have been like, oh, we have this Hammer Star who's going to be in our film. You know, I would have been down with it. So totally down. Prom Night movie, uh, the killer in it, Alex or whatever. Uh, so he's just casually a real estate agent in Toronto who has just shown up at people's houses being like, hey, you were thinking of selling, let me know. And my buddies are like, um, I'm not. <laughs> Quick question, were you a fucking night? <laughs> <laughs> if I let you sell my house, will you sign my DVD? <laughs> well, my friend was literally like, can I just like really quickly get you to autograph my DVD? Like, oh my God, you, you're, you're from prom night. Are you a real estate agent now? He's like, yup. Do you uh do awesome. you keep do you keep in touch with your sister Jamie Lee Curtis? No, not at all. No, never haven't spoken to her in thirty years. Yeah, <laughs> Allie. So when we asked you on the last episode which movies you would might be keen on coming back for, you immediately said Vampire Circus. So I got to ask, like, clearly this sounds like a favorite Hammer film of yours. What was your first experience like with it? When did you first see it, and uh, why do you love it so much? I think I first saw it maybe three years ago. And it was one of those things where I made the mistake of being like, oh, Chris, you can choose the movie tonight. And he was like, oh, (laughs) well, get a load of this. And then like straight up three times afterwards, he's like, have you seen Vampire Circus? And I'm like, I 
I don't know. Maybe. And he's like, ah, oh, you probably haven't seen it. And then he put it on again. And I'm like, fuck off. I've seen this. So I've seen it so many times now just because he keeps being like, you haven't seen this movie. Like, let's, let's watch it again. And I, I like it. It's, it's interesting. The, I don't know how to call her, the cat woman. Yeah. So fascinating to me. Also, this whole blood dripping thing is hilarious. It just absorbs your skin instantly. I love the fact there's something weird about it, though, where they could have done a simple fade on it. And back then, that probably would have been the easiest thing for them to do. But there is like a moment where the blood seems to get smaller, like it's being sucked into his pores, you know, before it disappears. I thought that was kind of neat. Mm-hmm. And something that was likely a little difficult for them to do back in the day. Well, and I do like, you know, like all Hammer vampire films, especially the later ones, this one's not afraid to, like, fuck with the mythology a little bit. Give the vampires different powers, change their powers. Yeah. Sort of add in little nuances about how they're resurrected that make it feel like, oh, yeah, that that was always there. It just never came up in a vampire movie before. Um, And I think the same story over and over again with just different characters. Yeah. Like, you need to give me something yeah, else exactly. to make you a vampire. Oh, yeah. God. And we also get to see, like, a castle burning down before the credits roll. Yeah. And that's usually something we have to wait to the end of a Hammer movie to watch. And can we just say how awesome it is here that there are real friggin' bats in this movie? Yes. yes. Oh, Finally. No rubber monstrosities dangling about on fishing lines. No. Yeah. Yeah. That is a really cool element. And again, like with the burning of the castle, it feels like the ending of a Hammer film because so many Hammer movies end with a thing burning down. So I feel like we've just watched a movie, you know, like, and now we're seeing like, yeah. And and now we're seeing like the sequel, (laughs) you know, like what happens next is like part two. And that kind of, I don't know, that kind of makes it a little more exciting and flows a little better. And, like, it feels like there's a mythology hidden behind the events of the plot, in a way, that most of these movies don't have. Um, So I I really, I do really like sort of the setup for all of this. And also, I like that we just did Horrors of Frankenstein and then this one, which both star David Prowse. Right? I'm right on that, right? Yeah. Yeah. That David yeah, Prowse, Prowse was, uh, he had appeared in The Horror of Frankenstein, and then again here as the scary, um, scary weightlifting strong, dude. Yeah. And I will say, you know, I mean, he, you know, with uh, without all the prosthetics uh, glued to his head and whatnot, like, and, you know, without the, the, the big black Darth Vader suit covering him up, like, in this movie, he's a damn handsome dude. Like, there, there's... There's a scene where he bursts through a door and he has like one eyebrow arched and, you know, he's all muscly. And it's like, you know, he could have been a forerunner to like The Rock. They could have given him action yeah. films in the <laughs> 70s had such action movies existed back then. Oh, yeah. He could have headlined Furious 10. Yeah, exactly. That would have been, a, I, I would watch the Furious movies if he was in it. <laughs> Agreed. People keep trying to get me to watch those movies. Like, I it is a consistent thing in my life. Paul, let me just tell you. Mm-hmm. I hated the first movie. 
the first movie is a shitty point break ripoff, almost beat for beat. Terrible. I became known at my movie theater for how much I hated that movie. And then the sequel came out directed by John Singleton. And I was fooled again, Paul. And I watched it. And the second movie made the first movie look like the actual point break. (laughs) Paul, the third movie is great. Oh, Tokyo Drift? Tokyo Drift is (laughs) so much Ever. No one was like, oh man. Said nobody ever. Allie, you're my favorite. No, no, no. I just want to talk to Allie from here on out because she (laughs) said no one ever about Tokyo Drift. I, (sighs) I, I just, I just can't imagine watching nine of those movies. That's my problem. Okay. You know what? (laughs) I just can't, I I can't envision a world where I watch nine Fest of the Furious movies. Paul, I hate to point this out, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. I I don't know. I didn't want to hit you. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Gonna I've get had two say. beers. Brace yourself. <laughs> yep. Saw. Saw's a horror franchise. Yeah, that's different. Saw's no, a horror no, no, franchise. That's not, that's not my point. It's that about a not, guy who that is not, puts no, people in no, traps. No, no, that is not my point. It's a, my, and it's a soap point. opera no, with traps. No, no. I, I don't... No. No, nope. Fast and the Furious nope. is about fast cars. How many movies can you make about fast cars? That is not my point. What my point is, apparently nine. You were were so dead set against watching a lengthy franchise because of how much you disliked the early entry that it took me strong arming you. Okay, are you telling me you don't like fun espionage, action, adventure, globe trotting flicks? Yeah, 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 I watch them. Yeah, I I mean, when you put it like that, I like, I mean, I like that. it's Vin Diesel, and you're like, oh, well. But, but I technically, it, yeah, right. Yeah, he was good as the Iron Giant. Like, I liked him as the Iron Giant. You don't like Super, Pitch Black, Superman? I liked him in Pitch Black. Pitch okay, Black's like, around Pitch Black's good. I like that shit. Didn't like him in Saving Private Ryan. I don't even remember. He's in that. Didn't like that? him in Boiler Room. I didn't know he was in that movie. No, I, I haven't seen Ryan. Saving He's Private Ryan though. since like 1998. Well, that's your fault. I mean, that, it, it's fine. I, I like it. It's good. Now, look, it's not my favorite. It's I'm, not my favorite Spielberg. I mean, it's not I'm, Hook. It's I'm no I'm Hook. Never. Nothing is but, Hook. I'm never going to say that the Fast and Furious franchise is like the greatest franchise ever. I'm just not. But after hey. how much I hated the first two, I will say it. it I was surprisingly pleasantly shocked can, and can surprised I... at how much I enjoyed the rest of the franchise. And I'll say this, the only reason I watched them all was to lead up to Furious 7 because James Wan directed it and because it was uh, Paul Walker's last movie and I was kind of curious about it, right? Uh, still hated the first two. Uh, three, really liked. Four, five, and six are a blast. Seven? So much fun. Like superior popcorn movie entertainment, man. And uh, by God, the way the the movie winds up going from being this kind of brainless popcorn movie extravaganza to winding up being this genuinely heartfelt coda to an actor's career, you know, it, it, it damn it, it brought the tears in the theater. Uh, now, I will say the movie after that is not good. Uh, even though they brought in Kurt Russell and Charlie Theron, the eighth movie is not that much fun. But Hobbs and Shaw, like the the Jason Statham 
the rock movie is a fucking blast. So it, it's worth your time. It really is. Chip like one away a week. And I don't think you'll, uh, right. you'll, well, you'll hate him. We'll see what happens. Um, I want to say we missed it, but that whole conversation in the like room with all the guys where they're talking about sort of science versus superstition, like they're the town struck by disease. And some of them are like, Oh, it's from this vampiric curse. And the, and the, the doctor's like, no, it's the festering ruins of that old castle and the bats that are breeding there because you people are fucking crazy and you won't clean it up, you know? And I'm like, that's such an interesting conversation to put in a movie like this, where the audience knows it's vampires, but it also is like a very relevant, interesting thing to kind of challenge the ideology of the town with a man of science that we don't typically see in movies like this. I thought that was a really cool way to begin the movie. I'd love to see the reverse of that, where it turns out the man of science was actually right. All of the villagers were just fucking crazy, and it turned out it was just, yeah, it wasn't vampire bats. I would love that. Disease yeah. ridden bats. I would you love know? that, yeah. Yeah, you, you can't really do it in a movie where you open with a guy like. No, no, donning fangs and biting into a child but hey you know maybe they were fake fangs like you get at walgreens no exactly i I swear as you said that i was thinking i'm like what if though somebody actually excavated the castle and they found like a skeleton with like fake porcelain fangs like just resting yeah or like um in trick-or-treat when um dylan baker's character has the fake fang yes oh my gosh Oh, trick or treat! Oh Where the hell gosh. is that? Just like I don't know, but man, that movie—that movie is. They did release two different comic movie. books about that movie. Those were yeah. so good. The 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 adaptation was really good, but I love the extension that yeah. went through the different ages and stuff. There was a Krampus. Yeah, I have that one. Yeah. Comic that book too. That was... Yeah, I don't like that. And they so, did. I don't have the Krampus one. I need to get the Krampus one. I have the trick or treat one day days of the dead or something where it like goes through all the different like time periods or whatever with Sam. Yeah. yeah. And Allie, did you say you checked out the, the Krampus comic too? I did. Cause I just, I love it. I love a good like Christmas horror film. Mm-hmm. And Paul, you might be interested in the Krampus comic too, because what's cool about it is that, it's a prequel to the movie, but the setup is very trick or treat where you have four different stories that weave in and out of one another. Uh, so it has that kind of pulp fictiony setup. And uh, really, it's a prequel to the movie. Yes. In fact, there are things in the movie that are, you know, just these casually tossed off references. And then if you read the comic, you're like, and then watch the movie again, you're like, Oh my God, they were talking about the security guard there. Oh my God. They were referencing this. Like, so yeah, it's, it's, is it's, it, is it called, uh, the shadow of St. Nicholas? I don't know what the subtitle was. Um, okay. Cause I see those... that on Amazon and if it is, I'm going to buy it. <laughs> yeah. You need, if you like the movie, you need the book. I'll have to research it, but yeah, uh, I will buy that immediately. I love those movies. Yeah, I think it's that one, the one that's by Michael Doherty. Dor- Doherty? Yep, okay. My butchering is Purchasing. Lost. Purchasing now. <laughs> I always right. buy something on podcasts, and this is what I'm buying tonight. I mean, after like three drinks, I'm usually like, what can I buy on Amazon? Yeah. <laughs> I still need to. Oh, I think I I'm making a. No, but I'm gonna buy it. I have I have spent way too much money the last couple of weeks on pre-ordering Blu-rays for things. 
I can't stop. By I pre-ordering Blu-rays, do you mean Halloween 1 through 5? I don't um, want to talk about it. Yes, that is what I'm talking about. I've bought these fucking movies like 70 times and I'm buying them again. Did you buy the standalone <laughs> 4Ks or did you buy the big son of a bitching like box Jinx, set? What do you like... what do you think I bought? What, well, what you, you, and I, your, you and I... Follow your inclination there. You and I dropped 60 bucks <laughs> on a special edition of Haunt that we swore to one another we wouldn't I'm do. I'm still mad about that. So if... <laughs> That's your fault. You <laughs> did that to me. That was, that was, you chose violence in that situation. <laughs> hey, were you not happy when you got it? I mean, it was good. I'm glad I it had it. It was fine. <laughs> it was fine. I'm glad I have the Blu-ray. It's a good edition. <sighs> That's a great movie, too. Um, it is such a good movie. movie. Such that is, that is a good movie. one of those movies that I'm completely fine with it being a one-off, mm-hmm. but it also kind of sucks that we're not going to get any follow-ups. But at the same time, I almost don't want any follow-ups because how do you follow it up given what they did to their villains in that movie? Like they, yeah. they, they burnt down the house on the way out, you know, uh, which I kind of love the ballsiness of that, but we, we should talk about the weird trippy circus show that's happening. Don't you think? So there it is. There's the the tiger lady who's totally naked. Totally (laughs) naked, covered in body paint, and I'm obsessed with it. To clue you in on the conversation between Paul and I via text uh, last night, he and I were like, "Okay, wait, is it just body paint? No, clearly there's like a latex patch, or there's no way she's actually. Oh my god! Oh my god! She's." Yeah, there's nothing there's nothing there. And this was the moment my wife walked in. So I was like watching this movie and she walks in, she's like, What are you watching? And I was like, Well, it's a hammer business. movie. Yeah, I was like, uh, yeah, I turned it off really quickly. I was like, Get nothing, out. nothing, don't worry about it. <laughs> but she was like, I was like, It's a hammer movie. She's like, are hammer movies, are those the ones you watch with the kids? And I was like, I didn't show them this one. <laughs> this one is not for children. No, no. Early Hammer films, kids can watch. Uh, 70s Hammer films, kids cannot watch. Yeah, not so much. But, yeah, this is a really interesting sort of, like, interpretive dance thing to have in a Hammer movie that's, like, very suggestive and sexual and animalistic and just kind of, like, a powerful scene on its own. And then you have, like, a tiger sort of pleasuring itself during it mimicking the movements that she's mimicking and like yeah it it works and like like oh my god the giant open mouth kiss question mark like yeah or bite or it's just it it it's so disarming at this point in the movie and then like the whole audience feels that way too but i like that it serves as a sort of distraction to the horrors of their world like it's so provocative and strange that it allows them to escape and it's like to me it almost suggests it's like that's the level of sort of oddness that would be required to remove them from their current situation so do you take that then to be a positive or negative thing that people going through you know, obviously a horrible period in time are able to go to a show to see a bit of entertainment and to sort of escape their misery because like, obviously that's, that's kind of a great thing. That's kind of the function of art. But at the same time, like I, it it was interesting to me that we, especially after having come out of the last year, like we have a setting where there is a plague 
which some people take seriously and others are content to ignore it and all the warning signs of danger in favor of being mindlessly entertained, you know? So like to me, I'm like, well, good thing. Is it a bad thing? Does the movie even have a position on it? I mean, I feel that it's a good thing. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. I, I think, well, I think that's what makes this movie really interesting. Um, because I see it as like these these vampires are also performers and they enjoy performing. They yeah. like entertaining people. Um, they, they, they get something from that. Um, and that's good for the people. Now, granted, it's it's a double edged sword because they're also exploiting these people. But I think that in and of itself is a commentary on the sort of like circus mythos of the American sort of experience or not just American, but like the, the worldwide experiences with circuses where people often viewed them as shysters or people who are there to just sort of take people's monies or trick people out of money. Um, while at the same time providing that service of entertainment. Um, and, and where's that line now, obviously like it's not cool for them to be like draining people's blood and murdering them, but I mean, I, I guess it's in the eye of the beholder. This is one of the most disturbing fucking things in the movie. The, the, him peeling oh, his face off. I'm like, what the fuck is happening? And then it's just oh, like, I hate it. and there's no reason for it. And nothing really comes of it. But it's so weird. And he's like shaking while he's doing it. This guy, even though he talks, gave me very strong, like, uh, like the dude, uh, the little person that's in the movie Big Fish, Danny DeVito's little guy. It kind of reminds me of him. The makeup's really similar. Also, you could have just been like, he looks like Dan DeVito. I'd be like, all right. <laughs> I could see Frank Riles doing that. Yeah. Okay, so she's angry. Um, <laughs> she's concerned. And that guy's handsome. Indeed. That's what I'm getting from all of these people right now. Um, Let's just do one of those commentaries. Let's, you... let's pull a carpenter and just describe what's going on. I was going to say, there. just describe what's on the frame for the, the rest of the movie. Now, i tell you <laughs> what, if y'all will allow me a moment, I uh, I did a little bit of research into the background of this movie because this is one of these movies that I didn't know a whole hell of a lot about background-wise. I listened to the um, – or rather, I watched the documentary that's on that great synapse disc, and I dug into the uh, <laughs> Hearn Barnes book, The Hammer Story. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so what I found was that, you know, and we've talked about this for the last couple of episodes, but again, you know, this is the point in Hammer's history where Anthony Hines had left. You know, he he he's, yeah. he was said to sort of be the company's main, you know, like the gothic horror guy for Hammer, whereas James Carreras was a salesman. He didn't care, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and Michael Carreras, the son, wasn't super keen on horror either. He liked other genres. So in Heinz's absence, Hammer was sort of faltering when it came to the horror game. So Hammer, at this point, was open to other creatives coming in. There was a gentleman named Wilbur Stark, an American based in England who'd worked in television but not film, with no previous ties to Hammer. And he pitched Carreras, uh, senior as it were, on the idea that would become Vampire Circus. And uh, as a result, I think he was ultimately put on the film as a uh, producer. Stark brought in a writer named George Baxt, 
who had written a movie called Circus of Horrors and City of the Dead, uh, the Christopher Lee film. And he also performed script work for Hammer going all the way back to The Revenge of Frankenstein. He wrote a treatment called The Vampire Circus, uh, which I think is important to note the distinction. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> which apparently James Carreras found to be, <laughs> quote, very, very bloody. Uh, which, you know, apparently was going to be okay for the rest of the world, but Carreras was kind of concerned, uh, dreaded, in fact, what the United States would make of it. And indeed, the movie was eventually shorn of three minutes from the U.S. Princeton film. So he wound up, George Baxt, with the story credit on Vampire Circus, though he claimed his only contribution to the film was the title, for which he boasted that he was paid £1,000 for by Hammer. So... Um, anyway, Michael Carrera saw the potential in the material, as did a Hammer script reader at the time named, I believe I'm getting her name right, Nadja Rajan, maybe? Nadja Rajan? Who was a former Bond girl. Uh, she was, in fact, in two previous Bond films. She was in uh, From Russia with Love and Goldfinger. And anyway, as a script reader for Hammer, she wrote that The Vampire Circus introduced an element of beauty, color, magic, and excitement into an ambiance of sickness, fear, and fear. <laughs> Which I think is a lot of fun. Uh, she even added notes for possible additions to the script, um, but she was apparently very concerned about the story's, quote, almost pathological obsession with children victims. So anyway, with this setup, the script was eventually given to a man named Judson Kimberg, who was a uh, prolific TV writer and new to horror. And then Robert Young, who was the director of documentaries before you know he was brought on the Vampire Circus, he was chosen for the movie to sort of make his narrative filmmaking debut. Uh, Michael Carrera sort of saw in him a filmmaker who would kind of deliver on the surreal kind of tone that he wanted for the material. So anyway, all of this to say, what we have with Vampire Circus is a film that had a lot of new blood pouring in the hammer, uh, which sort of reinvigorated it. And, you know, now I'm, I'm a fan of Scars of Dracula. I really dig horror Frankenstein, but audiences of the day were apparently becoming a bit tired of the hammer shtick. So one can see the benefit of bringing in a batch of new creatives to sort of breathe life into this dying company. And I, I do think that's all borne out on screen. You know, we've talked about it for 30 minutes now. This is a movie that does feel markedly different from everything that's kind of come before. And yet it is also surely a hammer film too. Yeah, it, it it's definitely indicative of, the old guard leaving and the new guard coming in and them throwing darts at a board and just seeing what sort of lands. Um, this movie feels very lively and feels really exciting when you compare it to Hammer's, you know, previous work. And that's one of the reasons I brought up Captain Kronos is because that movie does too, in my eyes. And it, it sort of starts melding the genre with other elements of filmmaking and other elements of storytelling that weren't present in Hammer before. Um, but I also think some of the weird elements of this movie come from the fact that, you know, the director didn't finish shooting the movie in the six weeks he was given. And so they just edited the footage that they actually had. So there's like chunks of the screenplay that weren't shot <laughs> that were supposed to be. So I think that's why the story feels like a little weird and kind of airy at times and not like totally fleshed out, but it kind of works given the movie that's around it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, that is that is a hell of a thing, you know, for the director to be bringing this sort of, I mean, kind of a bizarre take to the material. You know, he was doing something new and interesting, and it, damn it, man, he was working with live bats, you know? Like, he, he should have been given a little leeway, but you're right, Paul. I mean, by the time he got to the end of his shooting schedule, they still had what? Was it like a week left? Likely? Something like that? Like he had fallen something a full like week behind? And... He had six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> six and, weeks is i mean hell they shot prince of darkness in four weeks yeah he's so, not making crazy, like fight heavy marvel film exactly yeah, yeah, true true do we yeah. think the fact that there are were panthers in this movie means it's in canon with true blood i mean i assume every film made by hammer is in canon with true blood i mean that's fair, <laughs> true, that's fair. true blood is totally like so is yeah. bill the vampire somewhere in this world <laughs> Like, was he alive at this point? No. No, not yet, I guess. Not so, yet. I can't remember. Go on, say it with me. So good. <laughs> Anyone? Sorry. Huh? I apologize. I just, whenever I hear Wear Panther, I just think of True Blood. I can't help it. Wow. Nobody's going to do So Good with me. All right. I don't no, want to cool. say it. Say it, Paul. Really, I don't Paul, say it. damn it. Yeah. You've Maybe had more to drink than I have. When, when you're not expecting it, I'll I've say it. I've definitely had more to drink and I'm snacking now. Okay, Allie. Allie, what are you, with are you using chopsticks? Southern draw. Southern draw. <laughs> say suke. She said southern draw instead. That was good. Suke. Like <laughs> no, I may or may not have purchased a nice fancy cheese plate to go to my family's place up north for tomorrow. And I'm like, you know what? They don't need all this cheese. I'm they don't need it. that cheese. <laughs> <laughs> That's your cheese. You paid for that cheese. <laughs> That's your fancy cheese. You know what? You don't need to take I'm anything. Very, I am just... very jealous of a fancy <laughs> cheese plate. That sounds delicious. Okay, so the mirrors... John? <laughs> the mirrors scene reminds me of something wicked this way comes. Oh, a thousand percent. Disney ripped off this scene. Wait. Yeah. Disney ripped this off, yeah. I mean, Disney ripped off this whole movie. Everything from Disney this movie. Disney ripped off everything hey. it does. <laughs> You know, I was talking to my wife about this, and one thing that occurs to me when I watch a movie like this, like, a guy like that, it's possible he's never seen a mirror like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that might be why he's so entertained. He's probably never seen himself distorted. That's like, because, like, back then, there's no movies or shows to show him that such a mirror exists. This is probably like, oh, my God, look at how silly I look. I, I could never even fathom this. <laughs> And, and once I once that occurred to me, this scene was much more entertaining. Yeah, because otherwise he just seems kind of like a jackass. <laughs> I think but you're right. Just, like was no one back then would have ever seen a funhouse mirror. Like, when would you encounter one? I love that everybody seems to be getting more. Well, at least this guy seems to be getting more of a kick out of trick mirrors than uh, the the naked wear lady, the wear panther. Um, do, do you also like how they invert the whole like vampires don't have reflections and don't show up with show up in mirrors and actually have them show up in mirrors but not actually be there? I think that's kind of a cool inversion of a trope. Yeah, I never thought of it like that, but that is cool. I also like the idea that the man fainted and he has to be carried home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Thorley. <laughs> He's marvelous and a hammer veteran now by this point after yeah. uh, what he did. Four or five movies, well, right? Uh, 
he did Prince of Darkness. He was in Frankenstein Created Woman. He was a completely yeah. different character in Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. Um, was that it? <laughs> or I thought... Uh, I don't know. Why can't I think? I thought there was another one. Am I wrong? No. No? <laughs> We're, this is such a good commentary. Wow. Uh, oh, my gosh. He's in... Um, uh, uh, oh, my gosh. He's in uh, one of the big Terrence Fisher ones. Um, uh, Phantom of the Opera. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I know he's in one. So what do we think of this sequence, everyone? I Nothing. mean... No? No, no, it's cool. Nobody likes it. It's, yeah. Where they're just walking through a bunch of ferns during the day and they're all startled? Well, not so much that, but where we're, where we're going with it, which is... Oh. And by the way, I did just want to say one thing here. The, the actor here, the little person, Skip Martin is his name. He had previously played Frog in the subplot that adapted Poe's Hop Toad in uh, Roger Corman's The Mask of the Red Death, if you remember that. And I love that subplot, and I love him in that movie so much. He's great. And, uh, yeah, it's curious to see him I didn't connect play. that dot. I, yeah. I, didn't, I did not connect that. I love that movie. So great. This is such a... I love this sequence because... There's something very fairy tale like about it, or even yeah. you know, there's there's something kind of Pied Piper about it, which is, <laughs> you know, it's kind of whimsical in a way, but you know that it's leading towards something truly terrifying. Well, the use of Steadicam makes it feel more modern than a lot of Hammer films tend to feel. Yeah, and this is, and it's interesting that the women are kind of, you know, keying to the fact that something is amiss first, you know, as they're being mm-hmm. led deeper into the woods um and it's it's kind of i will say you know you got to give the director credit on this film when he eventually films the violence of this sequence it, it plays very well like it it totally sells what's happening and even though he's shooting it and you know paul you mentioned modern like it the quick cuts and the sort of out of focus mm-hmm. shots of the uh of the beast here tearing them up you know even though we do have those splashes of bright red paint for blood it still feels very realistic in its own way. Yeah, it, it's indicative of the coming decade. I mean, it's a very... This movie, more than a lot of Hammer's other films from this time, feels like a 70s movie. You know, yeah. like, it feels yeah. very entrenched in the filmmaking styles of the decade. Um, and it feels raw and naturalistic in a way that that the other films don't. You know, Kronos feels like a Western in a lot of ways, but it still has a classical filmmaking style sort of behind it. And I'm sorry, I know this predates it by 20 some years, but I will never be able to see a shot looking up at treetops swirling about and not think of Tina's death in Halloween 5. That is forever ingrained. I love that you've tied Halloween 5... Revenge of Michael Myers to Vampire Circus. I'm very happy about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's right there. So, <laughs> you know who else does that shot? Um, <clears throat> Rob Zombie in his Halloween remake. Okay. We're he does. No, he does do that. But does he? Yeah. He he does. He totally. We don't. Uh, the, we don't have to. When we, when, we don't when have young to do Michael that. when we young don't have Michael to do that. 
beats Look his at that blood. It's death. paint. I love the paint. The paint Paul, we got to get through this. We got to get through this. I will Look say that Rob sleeping. Zombie <laughs> must have seen and loved Halloween Five because he does homage that moment briefly. Okay. I'm and sure he did. I don't think he's seen a single Halloween movie. <laughs> oh, on the outside here. Love it. Ellie, you're the best. Uh, all right. Poor I'm interested in his take on the monsters. I'm very can't interested we, in that. Can't yeah, wait I like Harry Moon to play Lily. <laughs> is she playing Lily or is Elvira playing Lily? Because I'm hearing two things. I'm hearing Sherry Moon is playing Lily, which makes all the sense in the world. Like, but then Elvira is a part of it. And then somebody said that Sherry Moon was going to be playing a grown up um, Marilyn, which I think is really interesting. Hmm. It would be more interesting if he didn't cast her. It would. It would. I like. I think out of everything that they have done together, I have liked one thing, and it was Lords of Salem, and it wasn't necessarily yep. because of her, but because of the story. Yes. But everything Man, else. We are we are total like, agreement on this. <laughs> that is that is eerie. I, whoa, I whoa, 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 Allie, Allie, are you telling me that you did not like? House of a Thousand Corpses or The Devil's Rejects or... I'm not saying I didn't like those movies. I'm saying I didn't like her in those roles in those movies. Mm-hmm. All right. Fair enough. Fair yep. enough. I, I just feel like there were better actresses he could have chose. Okay. With the exception of 31, which I thought was just garbage nonsense. 31 yeah. is not good, but weirdly enough, I thought she was very good in it. Like, it, it almost felt like she sort of... She, after Lords of Salem, I thought she seemed to move up a level, like performance-wise, if that makes any sense. And then at 31, it felt like she sort of brought it, but the material failed her, if that makes any sense. I mean, it's hard to have... <laughs> that was a good sound. <laughs> good night, everyone. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna leave. I'll, to I'll keep recording for you, too. It's fine. You're fine, Jinx. You're good. It's fine. It's fine. You, you tried. <laughs> and I'm also not against any <laughs> casting their wife by any means. I think it's cute. And if you want to work with somebody you love, you should be able to do that. It's just maybe your wife should take an acting class. <gasps> I love how the little things on his boots looked like eyes. They I did know. look like eyes. I, I thought that was so cool. <laughs> I was like, ooh, creepy as hell. Oh, it's boots. Ooh, speaking of eyeballs. That's a hell of a reveal. The special effects in this movie are truly wonderful. Yes, very disturbing. And he doesn't, he knows how long to hold on the effects. I think that's why they work so well. Yeah, because if you held too long, you'd be like, oh, well, that's clearly a fake, yo, shitty prosthetic. But if you flash at it, you can hide imperfections exactly yeah it's great i agree it's really oh. creepy i agree with all of that and yet i wouldn't mind seeing a godzilla movie set entirely during the daytime just throwing that out there yes yeah, really yeah. two things have nothing to do with each other what's that <laughs> <laughs> just really bad special effects and a Godzilla movie. No, but it's like, you know, Godzilla, especially when it comes to the CG, there have been movies that 
and not just the Godzilla movies, but movies that try to hide the deficiencies in the sort of special effects and the CG under a cover of darkness, you know? And I'm like, I get it, but, you know, come on, Pacific. Tell me Pacific Rim wouldn't have been better had its climax not taken place, you know, in the bottom of the sea, like with loads of darkness. It just is a little disappointing. I don't know. I thought Pacific Rim was fun. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, like I feel like I, I saw that in a theater. I saw it. It was fun. That's that's all it needed to be. I don't know. I don't overthink it. I can't overthink <laughs> Guillermo del Toro's movies. Otherwise, I just nitpick them to shreds, and I end up mm-hmm. hating them. So I'm just like, you know what? No, I like this. It's fine. Let's not talk about it. <laughs> I usually just hone in on the things about them that I do like. Like, you know, like with... Uh, Crimson Peak. I love the set design. I love the production design of that movie. I love the 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 sort of bleeding walls of the house. Love that yeah. stuff. I just focus on that. <laughs> I I do like any older movie that uses real animals because I'm always terrified. Like whenever I see a real tiger in a movie, especially like from you know, a couple decades ago, I'm like, man, that was so dangerous to work with that animal. And they probably weren't, like, doing it exactly the right way. And it just kind of freaks me out. I don't know. Yeah, I feel that. And my wife is always sort of, like, up in arms about it because she's a zookeeper. So she, like, really gets mad at movies that use real animals because she knows how horrible the industry typically treats them. So she's like, oh, yeah, they were and like whenever you see the animal reacting in a weird way she's like oh yeah they sedated it there and they did this to get it to do that and that was bad and this is bad and i'm like awesome this is great commentary i love this (laughs) well now you just made me feel really bad about all the animals in this movie (laughs) well if it makes you feel any better like every movie did (laughs) every movie that had animals even just like rewatch, like watching Blowout, like literally yesterday, and that scene where mm-hmm. he's driving his car through the Liberty Bell parade thing, and those mm-hmm. cops on horses, and one of the horses just bails so hard. I was like, oh, that poor horse. Yeah. And there was like very little oversight to that back then. So, yeah, <laughs> it's very questionable. Especially what they would do with primates in movies. It was, it was real bad. Oh, it but is. I love it. Yeah, she's a primate keeper, so that's where she's like particularly sensitive. That's fair. <laughs> Which is understandable, like completely, but yeah. And yet we love to watch animal attack movies, which is counterintuitive to what Also, isn't it currently Shark Week? Like, don't we love to see uh, Shark Yeah. Week? Yeah, Shark movies are great. Yeah. Except for when um uh sh- they there there's some very questionable things that have happened in shark movies. Um, Kevin uh, Maher Mayer I I don't I don't know how to say his last name. I feel really bad. He's Kevin Geeks out on Twitter. He made a really good uh, shark like a video on YouTube going through shark movies, kind of calling out the like the various ways they've made them before, and it's like really fucked up some of the things they've done, and especially in like post Jaws shark exploitation movies. Where, like, there, there's movies where they used, like, actual cadavers and threw, like, cadavers into, like, with real sharks and would just film the sharks eating bodies and put that in a movie. And I'm like, that is really fucked up. <laughs> yeah, that 
that doesn't seem like it's an okay thing to do. Yeah, that's like super not okay. <laughs> anyway, sorry. That tiger's sedated though. Lots of drugs. That's why it's not biting anyone. <laughs> oh, that poor tiger. Well, the funny thing is, even when you do that, it's still a wild animal. You don't know. Oh, and that part, that's actually one of the things that he wasted all the film on. Because it's biting an arm filled. So they had like a fake arm filled with pork. And they were trying to get the tiger to bite it for that shot. And it wouldn't bite it. So then they had to fill it with beef. And then it finally bit it. And they wasted like tons of film on that. And that was like one of the reasons it went over like stuff like that was the director wasn't was wasting a lot of film on like single shots and stuff. What a bunch of dicks. What a bunch of dicks. Also, I readily have the hiccups now. That's going to be really good for podcasting. (laughs) I love it. We're keeping in all the hiccups. (laughs) I'm just trying to hold my breath now. (laughs) Oh, these cute little kids. They, yeah. Although a cute kid in this movie is sort of a sad thing to see because you kind of know that they're trudging towards a sticky end, more than likely. I do think um, background changes, like when they look in that mirror, like they're those two vampires are fully outside. That is that is true. There is a little bit of a weird sort of thing that happens with this mirror situation. I like it. I like a good mystical mirror. <laughs> Again, these kids probably never saw a mirror like that. <laughs> I mean, not to sound arrogant or anything, but like when were mirrors invented? Had they seen a mirror at all in their life? I feel like, I Wait, mean, I, I feel like they've seen mirrors. Um, I don't, I don't know what mirrors were invented. <laughs> God damn it! I, I don't have that information readily available. I can, I can look on Google, <laughs> but my guess is that they probably like have mirrors, but I doubt they have fun mirrors, right? I mean, no mirrors are fun mirrors. I guess that's true. Well, I mean, some are kind of fun. Yeah, like the ones that are on the ceiling. (laughs) Oh my God, these hiccups need to go. (laughs) I love love the hiccups. Okay, so uh, according to (laughs) Wikipedia... The invention of the silver glass mirror is credited to German chemist Justice von Liebig in 1835. Okay, then they definitely had mirrors. Yeah, yeah. They would They would have been probably... I don't think those would... Because is that like an invention that would have been limited to like the wealthy? Or would everyone have had access to it, you know? Oh, yeah, that's a good call. Like, I don't know if that's something that immediately was like, oh, everybody has one of these. You know? I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking it. <laughs> maybe. I mean, maybe the poor didn't get to see themselves in a mirror. They had to go and, you know, buy their clothes and see themselves in a mirror at a store, but not at home. Right. Or they could, like, go to the lake 
and just look yeah. at their reflection in their new clothes. But there are <laughs> very the hair so like they must know how to shave. Well, while there looking. was like silver and stuff. They could see their. They have to have been able to see their reflection in things. <laughs> They're just holding up pots and pans. <laughs> People had windows. You could kind of see your reflection in a window, right? <laughs> All right, everyone's whole thing for this week, like their goal: look at yourself in the reflection of a window and just shave your face. <laughs> Yeah. All right, guys. Tweet us at the Hammer Pub, which is not our handle, but go ahead and tweet us there. Uh, what it's like to do your hair and makeup in a window reflection as opposed to a mirror, and see how well it goes. It'll be like you're living before 1835. That's so dark. I just seeing like dead kids is so freaking dark. But also seeing their wounds be like bluey green like they had been dead yeah. for a while it's easy. it's upsetting i mean it, and like in a very like it's surprisingly effective for how kind of silly the movie sometimes is you know because like in some hammer movies that get a little sillier it's hard for it to sort of wrangle me back into a point where i feel emotionally involved or like disturbed in some way and like this movie actually does a really good job of that now, would it be as effective if it was on an adult? Like, is it more um, on a child? No, I don't think it would. I really don't think it would. I think you could do the exact same scene with an adult, and it would not work as well. And I, I, I think that, like, well, and what Jinx was saying about the script reader, like how she was disturbed just reading about the script's fascination with, like, killing kids... It was uncouth to do that. That was not something that they did in movies. So I think this was sort of breaking the mold a little bit. It's true. Even now, they still don't really kill kids in movies. It's very rare. Yeah. And it it seems like it's a a rule that you don't break kind of thing. Which is what we were talking about with uh, Fear Street. You know, 1978. Like, I was really surprised at how willy-nilly they were. With killing kids. Yeah, with killing kids. I, you know, and it, and it did make that movie more impactful, I think. So the vampires in this movie, are they just straight up shapeshifters? Can they just become whatever they want? Like, or. Yes. Just (laughs) have seen what we've seen. Okay. Yeah. Because that's my thing. It's like, we see a bunch of different animals. So does that mean like any vampire at any time could become a tiger or are certain vampires, tiger vampires and certain vampires, you know, chimpanzee vampires. (laughs) Well, they also change like faces, right? Like they suggest that they can like turn into other people or look like other people. What we're basically saying is that this movie is all over the place. (laughs) <laughs> and like I'm here for also this old guy who has clearly gone insane since looking at the mirror. Mm-hmm. His he argument, was so excited. He was so excited so- to see a distorted mirror. He's like, I can't, I can't handle it anymore. I can't now, go back to a world without silly mirrors. And he somehow shot a gun but hurt himself, <laughs> which we've all been there. I mean, if you've ever tried to fire a gun like that at night at a circus when you've seen a silly mirror I mean, it's just 
Face change. Oh yeah. They can change faces. Okay. Yeah, that's my thing is like they're they're really kind of shape-shifting vampires, which again reminds me of Kronos because in Kronos they introduce the idea that there are different types of vampires. Some vampires that feed on blood, some vampires that feed on uh, energy, some vampires that feed on like years because like the vampires in Kronos suck Mm. your age out of you. So, like, in this one, I like the idea that it's like, oh, these are shape-shifting vampires. So maybe this is just a troop of a certain kind of vampire that exists in a greater world of different vampires. There is, I've seen a couple of mentions here and there that somehow, someway, Vampire Circus and Captain Kronos are somehow related to the Karnstein trilogy. Which is, what, the Vampire Lovers, Lust for Vampire, and... Well, Karnstein's... The name of one of the characters in Kronos. Right, right, right. Which is direct, but there is something about Vampire Circus that somehow indirectly links it, but I've never been able to find anything that explains just what in the hell that is. Maybe that's your mission. But I like the yeah. idea that there are five <laughs> films in a trilogy. Uh, just, <laughs> well, me. I just, I just that- think it's that like the idea that Kronos puts forward is that, Hey, it's a, it's a big world out there. There's lots of different types of monsters and therefore all of these movies can just sort of coexist in continuity with one another. But, you know, I don't think I, I, me personally, I don't think they like set out to make these connected. I think it was more them just willing to embrace like, Hey, like, like we were talking about earlier, like, our vampire movies have to be able to evolve and be different and new for this stuff to be in any way sustainable. Because if they were still making movies just like Prince of Darkness at this point, it would be, there'd be no purpose to it. You know, they wouldn't be adding anything to the conversation. I've never seen a vampire bite somebody on the back of their neck. I was just thinking, like, don't they want to go for, like, the jugular where the blood is? It's kind of a dick move. You would think it would hurt You know, more. back of the neck, though, given how all these people's hair kind of hangs over the back of the neck, would be smarter. It'd be more yeah. hidden. But is it practical? Probably not. <laughs> like, from a medical standpoint, you want to hit, like, a major artery to get all that, like, the good blood? Yeah, you want that good, good blood. You're right. Yeah. I I I mean, although I have to say, like, I don't know that these vampires are all that wor- all that much worried about practicality. <laughs> They're going about this in a very over elaborate way. You gotta like, wonder putting if on a, been a full bit... show, like a full circus <laughs> show, like is not super practical, like as a vampire, because you could probably just go kill these people. <laughs> Imagine thirty days of night, but if the vampires had been more keen on entertaining. Yeah. When in fact they should have just been white. I mean, I appreciate Anna. the efforts to which they're going to entertain their victims. <laughs> I think that's pretty great. They're not all bad. I will say here the uh, the children. I mean, I guess the kids who are ultimately proven to be Anna's kids. On the right there is Lala Ward, who, <laughs> for fellow Doctor Who nerds out there, was the second Romana in Doctor Who. Paul, I keep telling you to watch the Tom Baker run of Doctor Who back in the seventies. It's like Hammer, only for television. 
you have sci-fi thrown in. And she was uh, she was the doc's companion and equal throughout a long stretch of the uh, the seventies run of the show with Tom Baker. Uh, she played a fellow Time Lord, uh, which I guess they called her a Time Lady. But uh, I thought that, he was the last Time Lord. I thought that was the whole thing. Oh well, he was starting in two thousand five with Christopher Eccleston run. You find oh, out okay. everybody okay. everybody died. Okay. Sometimes I find it really quaint, the subtitles, like what they say. Like, like I'm watching this horror movie, and all of a sudden it's like, horses trotting. Like, that sounds really nice, you know? But it's but they're trotting yeah. towards a dead Thorley Walters. Do you often watch movies with subtitles, or just in cases like this? Um, I, I do it in movies where I don't know, it's, it's sort of a case by case. I will turn them on if it's, you know, cause these days it feels like different movies are mixed um, with the dialogue really light. And especially in Christopher Nolan movies. Yeah. And honestly, like let's call it what it is. Like modern lower budget indie movies often have like, I know that like the, you've heard the term mumblecore. Yeah. I think that's a real thing where people tend to be really quiet with their words, a lot of whispering and horse talking that can be really difficult to hear over the background music or sound effects if it's not mixed well. Um, and and just sometimes like how it's streaming. So I'll turn subtitles on if it's hard to hear people, um, which I often have to do in lower budget stuff. Um, but I don't do it all the time. You know, it's sort of a case by case. I mean, I love watching movies with subtitles because I, if I'm eating during a film, I'm a loud chewer and I'll just straight up miss whole sections of dialogue. <laughs> so it's good for me to be like, oh, okay, that's what they're saying. Also, I like hearing like when they just do the descriptive video parts, that part always gets me because it's always so funny. Yeah. Like when well, you watch... And... Sorry, we watch like Hannibal and it's like screaming internally. And I'm like, that's me all the time. Why is that a sound? <laughs> I love it. Well, sometimes the descriptive stuff calls attention to things that I wasn't paying attention to. Yeah. Like it, it'll, it'll like, oh, I should be, oh, that's important. Like this thing that it's doing is super important. And like, it's actually helped me like understand movies more. And like, like, I, I notice sometimes, like, if a pop song or a song with lyrics is playing over a sort of like a montage sequence, when you put subtitles on, if that song is important to the plot, they will subtitle the lyrics to the song, but yeah. only when it's, like, plot important. And I find that really interesting, too, because then it's kind of like, I don't often pay attention to lyrics, like, if there's, like, a background song. Mm. And I'll be like, oh, this is like foreshadowing something that's going to happen in the third act. Oh, that's pretty cool. You know, so it kind of helps me sort of understand the whole picture of the movie a little better. I agree. I think the only time I don't like subtitles is I watch a lot of reality competition shows like Survivor or Cooking or whatever. And like the final episode when they're about to announce who wins the million dollar prize Sometimes the closed captioning is a little faster than them speaking. And I'm like, well, now you fucking ruined it. That's funny. (laughs) 
It's always creepy when people slowly approach a house. No matter what. No matter what the situation. Read that this was shot at Pinewood Studios in the summer. I'm wondering if the exterior sets were built at Pinewood 2 or if they shot on location at all. Um, This is like the only fun fact I know about this movie is that this is the same set as Twins of Evil. Oh, nice. That's cool. And that's it. And I have nothing to back it up. I just know that. (laughs) That's a good fact. Yeah, good movie. Yeah, I, even I, though we're I, long past the point where it's worth noting, I did think it was kind of cool that the production hired genuine circus performers to be used in the film alongside the actors. I, I just thought that was kind of neat. Apparently, because many were not British nationals, they actually had to go through like an application process to get special permits to even be in the film, which I thought was kind of nutty. That is crazy. Yeah, I think the filmmaking here at the end is is very good. Like, I I like how he again very chronosy. Like he shoots action through the lens of other things, like through the curtains, around candlesticks. You know, it just it feels like you're in a space watching these things happen. It feels a little bit more observational, documentary like, um, which adds a sense of like realism to the surrealism that's happening. Yeah, absolutely. This guy's hair. Sorry, it's hypnotic. Um, It's beautiful. No, I do love that shot. Some of the transitions that he uses, especially with that character, uh, the transformations, like he doesn't do the Wolfman thing where it's like these slow fades or anything. I love that he just does it in simple cuts. Mm-hmm. And kind of, you know, in-camera tricks. I think it's very neat, and it's much more effective. Uh, damn sight more effective than him trying to do the same thing early on in the film when Mitterhouse first appears. You know, again, that just kind of, quick sequence. But, um, no, any time he changes into the panther, I think it's kind of fascinating. I just like the idea that a vampire wants to be a panther versus a bat. Of course, when you get to the Argento Dracula 3D, he wants to be a giant fucking grasshopper or whatever the hell it was. Or was yeah. it a praying mantis? Awesome. Any... <laughs> I, have not, I have not seen that yet. I have not seen Argento Dracula. I was um, I was relatively new to Argento back in the mid-90s. I just caught Stendhal Syndrome. That was my first Argento. And I think that movie holds up. And then I went back and caught like Deep Red and Suspiria and so on and so forth. And... It was announced, I think, in this old magazine, Cine Fantastique, um, that he was going to be doing the Phantom of the Opera. And they did this amazing onset, you know, uh, sort of expose on the making of the movie, and they chatted with him. And they actually printed these gorgeous painted um, pieces of concept art for the movie in the magazine. And I couldn't have been more pumped that this guy, this amazing visual stylist, was tackling, you know, one of my favorite stories. And then... The movie. And I don't know if either of you have ever seen um, the, 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 the rat fucking Phantom of the Opera movie or not, but um, it's, it's something. And damn it, if he didn't fool me again with Dracula, I, even though he had gone through a long period of not great movies, I was hoping, had my fingers crossed, that him tackling this classic property would somehow allow him to tell a great story and, you know, 
do his own version of it and then you then you get it and it's a fucking praying mantis dracula it's just awful yeah it was a bummer when that came out paul have you seen either one no it's it's fun (laughs) i just i i stick to the classics is what i do then i'm never disappointed I, you know, it's funny. He's been making the interview rounds recently because of the release of the novelization, which I'm halfway through. But Tarantino uh, has been hitting like loads of podcasts and print interviews talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the novelization, which is a lot of fun so far. And one of the things they keep sort of touching on is the fact that he is doing one more movie and he's quitting because he doesn't, he, you know, he doesn't want to keep making movies into an older age. And uh, as his faculty is beginning to leave him and I'd say it, but watching Argento, like his sort of trajectory after the mid nineties kind of makes me think that Tarantino is onto something. I got into an argument with a friend about that, where she basically noted like, look, if he's happy and people are willing to pay him to do what he loves, you should be happy for him. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. But at the same time, like to use a dodgy sports metaphor, like I can cheer on my favorite team and love the fact that they're having a ball playing, but if they lose the game, I'm going to feel bad about it. And eventually I'm just going to want them to stop losing games. You know what I mean? Like, and Argento, I wish more than anything that he could do one more movie on the level of like his classics. Like if he could do another Suspiria, or another hell, even an inferno or tenebrae, something like that. Or something. And then just drop the mic. I honestly think everything else would be forgotten about. Everything in between <clears throat> his best work and his last. You know, those would yeah. become a footnote instead of a defining aspect of his filmography. Well, you know imagine I mean? if like um and I'm not saying like every movie after this was bad, but imagine if like opera had been his last movie. I mean, he would be considered yeah. like a perfect filmmaker <laughs> you know yeah. like like there would be nothing to really challenge his reign and it's it's a shame now when you have that conversation that argento conversation a big part of his career is sort of a lot of missteps there, there's some good stuff post-opera but it's but nothing that's ever i don't know in my opinion Nothing that ever reaches the heights of his best, you know? No. Um, I mean, I, I like trauma. Trauma is fun. I think the Stendhal syndrome is actually quite good. But beyond that, I can't think of a single entire film yeah. that's fully successful. Like, there are good stretches. And, you know, there are great moments in Sleepless. There are great moments in The Card Player. Yeah, Card Player. Um, or like, um, uh, what was it, Phenomena? Well, oh, that was yeah, Phenomena that's, that's is great. Classic. Yeah, that might be. It's funny, whatever one I'm watching at the time, be it Deep Red, Suspiria, Tenebrae or Phenomena, like whichever one I'm watching at the time, that's my favorite Argento. Okay, which which cut do you guys like of Phenomena? Do you like the really short cut or do you like the long extended director's cut? Two totally different movies. I like the I like the longer director's cut. I know that's a bit controversial. I know a lot of people are like. Shorter is faster and it's clippier and blah blah blah. But me, I I love. I'm not here to you know be in and out. Like I want to see it. Yeah, me too. I like I I, I, I'm glad you guys like that one too because like 
that's the one I like, but a lot of people like that theatrical, the U.S. theatrical shorter cut, the Creepers cut, I guess is what it's called, because that's what it was released as, right? Creepers? Yeah. 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 It's so terrible. it's like, I don't, I don't like that cut as much. I think it's, it doesn't work as well for me, but I love the director's cut of that movie. It's the great. director's cut tells the whole story and it's really great. And I feel like horror yeah. fans want everything to be like, you know, a tight 90 minutes and then it's done. Yeah. And yeah. Lies. That's that's true. Like people hold on to that ninety minute thing a little bit too much. I I love a ninety minute movie. Don't get me wrong. Oh yeah, but, like, I love it too. But yeah, but if a movie needs to be longer, then it needs to be longer. Yeah, like look at like Midsummer or uh, mm-hmm. The Shining, or and not a great example, but like Army of the Dead was super fun and it was over two hours. Like mm-hmm. you just sometimes you just need a longer cut. You need to not be you know a little dick about it. <laughs> I think the main thing, and I wonder if people, you know, a lot of people who champion like uh, 90 minutes or less horror movies, like if, if if they're not responding so much to the length of the movie as it is the, the filmmaker's ability to not have stretches of the movie be boring. You know, I've, I've seen 80 minute movies that felt like they stretched on for ages and, you yeah. know, I can watch midsummer and, you know, be fine with eight more hours in that world, you know? Um, yeah. That's a really good example because the director's cut, like the longer version of that movie feels shorter to me because it flows so well. Yeah. It does. The acting is just so good and like the scenery and like all the settings that are involved with yeah. it are just so magnificent. And it's I a love... good daytime horror and I love Yes, like, daytime day- horror. <laughs> yes. So good. So rare that you get that. And that it's actually like effective and creepy. Yeah, it also kind of feels like you were watching like a little bit of like a National Geographics thing and then Yeah. You know, but, and you're like, all right. That uh when they shoot the strong man in uh, in this it's like the gunshot exploding out of his back is so like such good gore i do love that what triggers that is absolutely nothing at all like he he, he didn't act like he was going to back down but he didn't charge toward them either like there was no mm-hmm. real inciting incident in that moment and i love that one dude just kind of took a look at him he's like fuck it i'm putting them down like yeah. i I'm not taking any chances. Look how damn big he is. I do love this whole ending is just like chaos. It's so chaotic. It's like, you know, shooting him, weird things in the mirror, fire that breaks out, you know, like it's just utter chaos and bloodshed. It's very like weirdly sexual and violent and, and just sort of disturbing and disorienting. As they're trying to kind of, and I think some of that might be indicative of what was and wasn't shot and how they sort of put it together in the editing bay. But I actually love the feeling it kind of ends up eliciting. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. I mean, it is, it is, it gets to the point where we start to share the character's madness on screen. And Mm -hmm. I mean, starting almost with, I mean, it feels like in a way that David Prowse's death almost kind of kicks it off because not only does he get, um, his his nipple blown through his spine there like that wasn't enough all of the villagers had to rush up and then proceed to start beating his corpse um you know which seems like they're overdoing it a bit but, but uh, are they a bunch of kids died yeah true true <laughs> give him a good kick and 
Um, I mean, I, if somebody killed a whole bunch of kids I knew and loved, I'd probably beat their corpse. Also, are they just recycling that same shot of the blood dripping on the chest and then being absorbed? Yeah, it's the same. Uh-huh. It's yeah, exactly they sure are. <laughs> okay, even though he is, um, he's he's now gone from the movie. He uh, he shuffled loose that mortal coil, or rather, had it shuffled loose for him. Uh, I did want to say one quick thing about the strongman actor David Prowse. Obviously, he was in Horror of Frankenstein. He'll show up again in Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. He's Darth Vader. You know, all of that's neat. There was a really neat anecdote on the Synapse Blu-ray that talked about the fact that he had tried to get his career started early on with Hammer because he thought he would make a great creature for them. So not really knowing how the business worked, he basically took some photos of himself and just strolled right into Hammer's main offices and happened to bump into Michael Carreras uh, and basically told him, look, I think I'd be really great for one of your movies. And apparently Carreras straight up booted him out of the offices, uh, which was funny because eventually, you know, Jimmy Sangster would cast him as a horror Frankenstein and then they would have to pursue him to be in this. So, you know, he kind of got his rewards that way. But uh, I just thought that was a really funny way for his relationship with the studio to have begun. Yeah, it's that is pretty funny, and and it it's also again indicative of just how I don't know. It feels like Hammer was very much driven by just a couple of people and their emotions and feelings towards what a movie should or shouldn't be. You know, there there it's it's funny how much just one decision could could impact. You know, such a long lineage of style and structure and players you know in these movies something i love about hammer in general is you can really just trace everything that's happening through just a couple of key players yeah absolutely yeah so many great moments here in the finale and so many striking shots i love you know that sort of look on his face with the fangs bared it's like i believe that that actually becomes the 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 quad poster art for the film like him bearing his teeth in that way Mm -hmm. yeah so much of the stuff sells in a way that you know the kind of violence doesn't in some of the other hammer movies like the the arrow in the chest um and although you know i mean his shirt magically heals itself but i'm nitpicking at this point I don't know. There's a rawness to this movie. I mean, maybe it's the blood. Maybe it's the filmmaking style. Maybe it's the amount of violence. Yeah. Because we see so much more violence. I think that's that's part of it. It's like, you know, in most Hammer vampire films, even the ones that were considered violent at the time, it's like like a couple of key set pieces that have violence in them rather than violence that's just consistently hitting you all the time. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's kind of relentless at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Seeing that bat burn in the air and fall to the ground is pretty intense, too. <laughs> there sure, is, hope that wasn't this... a real bat. <laughs> that was just scoop the ashes and draw a little happy face in it. Yeah. Did anyone field you asshole? <laughs> <laughs> Did anyone find Panther Guy's death to be? even remotely reminiscent or at least a forebear of uh, Paul Rubin's death in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. (laughs) 
like he he does a little gurning there. He does a little like tripping around. He kind of milks it for all it's worth. I kind of wanted him to do the uh, ah ooh e ah. It's true. He should have milked it a little bit more. I do they had Vampire Slayer. That's a neat little dissolve that just happened too. Yeah. Oh my god. If these fucking hiccups don't stop, I'm just gonna jump off my balcony. <laughs> and that would probably stop the hiccups, but we'd be sad about it. But also, most epic podcast episode ever. You're right. I mean, it would be yeah. unforgettable. Yeah. And All not only because was... of his uh, deep V right there. Yeah. You know he gets V in that V. <laughs> the V gets the V. that guy is ready to star in a psychedelic music video i really like i concur the decapitation (gasps) yes i don't think i've ever seen that before in any any movie period have have we ever seen decapitation by by crossbow Crossbow? No, no it's amazing it's amazing. I don't even know if it would work, but damn it. Well, I, I sort of think the fact that it was like infused with a with a cross or whatever, like kind of gives it more power or something. The head rolling into the coffin too, actually, I don't even know how they did it because you can always tell when it's a fake head mm-hmm. and it rolled into the coffin like a fake head, but that's totally that dude's face. Mm-hmm. So you would think that the trick would be okay. He's Wasn't there a cut? Would, <clears throat> there is. There is definite cut, and the second shot is totally his head poking up through the bottom right. of the casket. But yeah. even the first seen. shot looks shockingly real. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. The head they built looks good. And as all Hammer movies do, they decide in the end, let's burn it with fire and walk away. As well really, as they could start with this. Exactly, it begins where it ends, where it began, as it always will. And a bat flies away. So, which which vampire lived? None of them. Well, there's a bat. Is that one of them, or is that just a bat? Well, I mean, I like it's just a bat outside of the vampire worlds. I guess. I guess. I like to think it's Travolta from that Saturday Night Live sketch. Mm. <laughs> anyone? Anyone? No one maybe, uh, maybe it's Dracula himself. Maybe he was watching the proceedings and he's like, okay, well, they failed. Okay, anyone? this will not stand. Like, if you two don't know what I'm talking about when I'm referencing the Travolta bat I sketch don't. from Saturday Night Live. I, I just, I cannot abide by this. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Paul, damn it. This is, this is, you, you need to know what this is. I'm searching for it now. I will post it in the show notes for folks out there listening to check out. The show notes. Uh, Lots of show notes tonight. Travolta, Dracula, SNL. Travolta played Dracula on SNL because that sounds great. Yes. And it's amazing. And there's a bat sequence and it's, uh. Yeah, it's it's marvelous. I feel like I should have seen this by now. Maybe yeah, I did see it at some point because 
how does that exist and i don't know about it that's crazy okay weirdly enough not on youtube what the hell some of them aren't which is weird like a bunch of the sarah michelle geller ones aren't on youtube oh that's lame it is i think it's a copyright thing quote me on that i don't know maybe travolta's very like protective Scientology. hope you can't have that Right. It is uh it is on Daily Motion though. So Good old Daily Motion. Sending you all that link. We'll watch. Although part of me realizes now what the problem might be with it when it comes to how they chose to title the skit and it reminds me of part of the yeah, one of the gags. I could see why that would be maybe a little incendiary now. I don't know. It was of its time. I plan on getting very offended by this. Yeah. <laughs> I don't do anything to be offended. And I'm going to hold it against you personally, Jinx. I'm going to act fine. like you wrote the sketch. I'm going to call you a misogynist just for making me watch this. Yep. Yep. That's fair. If y'all are pissed at me, you're going to have to get in line. I'm just going to go ahead. There's there's a wait. Take a number. There are t-shirts in the lobby. Just... uh <laughs> Right. I want a I'm pissed at Jinx t-shirt. I was just thinking, I'm like, that's a good t-shirt. I would wear the shit out of that t-shirt. Cool little Scream Addicts logo on the back. Like, boom, you're done. <laughs> that's, we can finally sell some merch. <laughs> you know, you joke, but I have looked into uh, Scream Addicts t-shirts and enamel pens. So I would, I would uh, buy one. And it's funny, we have enough listeners that it would be a worthwhile venture, except the last time that I brought it up on the podcast, I was like, let us know if you would be interested in purchasing a t-shirt or an ML pen, blah, blah, blah. And like every comment that we've ever gotten, which is to say none, there were no responses. So I was like, <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, People don't like to talk. I have anxiety and they don't want to talk. Right. Yeah, right. Well, that makes sense. That's that's why they listen to podcasts. They let others yeah, do yeah. the talking for them. That's cool. Yeah. I get that. I, I appreciate that. I used to be the same way. All right. So that brings us to the end of Vampire Circus. I It was a lot of fun chatting about, I think. Uh, it's a fun movie. So folks out there listening, if for whatever reason you haven't gotten around to watching it yet, one, you probably should have watched it with this, but two, we know that you're probably not doing that at all. So we hope that even for all the spoilers, you will give it a shot at some point. Like we said, it is playing on Shudder, or you can track down that nifty Synapse DVD and Blu-ray set out there somewhere. Um, Okay, we have reached pretty much the end of the episode, I think. Allie, please. Let folks know out there where they can find you at online and what we can keep an eye out for for in the future. I know we just asked that like two weeks ago, but I'm going to ask again. Well, you can find me across all social media platforms at the Alley Chapel, T-H-E-A-L-I-C-H. I know how to spell my name, okay? <laughs> I don't need to spell it, guys. You can do it. Yeah, and then um, – yeah, I do know that last time we chatted, I said that I had a movie coming out or two movies coming out this month. So actually this Wednesday, a movie that I was in is going to be on a bunch of the streaming platforms. I don't know which one's on the top of my head. I assume Super Channel, I guess. Uh, but that's all on my Instagram, so you can find it there. And then I have two films coming out this summer, one in August and then one in October, which I guess is the summer. You guys really put me on the spot. 
and I've had some drinks. <laughs> and you make me sound like a dick I'm, for not knowing my stuff. I'm super excited to watch a movie that you're in. I'm very excited. Oh, please do. There's already like one on Tubi. Actually, there may be two on Tubi as of tomorrow. Wait, what day is it? No, it's Monday. As of Wednesday. What is the what is the current one? Necropolis Legion is on Tubi right oh, now. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I I saw that through uh, the Full Moon app. Oh, yeah, you have the Full Moon app. That's obviously where everyone should get it from is the Full Moon app that you pay for. But if you want to <laughs> see it for free. <laughs> okay, Necropolis Legion. I will watch it. That's my homework. Yeah, out of and, all the movies you told to watch tonight, it's that one and the Megan Fox one. That, Megan Fox. still death, and, uh, you know, maybe censor, maybe not. No pressure, Paul. No pressure. No pressure. I'm going to prioritize uh, Necropolis Legion over that, though. That's fair, as you should. That's fair. <laughs> All right, Allie, thank you so much for being on the show again. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me again. I had so much fun. All right, and Paul, why don't you let folks know out there where they can find you at online? Go ahead. Go ahead. Say the uh, say your Twitter handle. Give, yeah, give the explanation. Come handle. on, do it. <laughs> Come on. I am at the... Uh, I added a the there. I've had a few drinks too. Uh, <laughs> I am at Paul is great 2000, uh, a handle I made as a joke at a wedding once. <laughs> oh, the mythology I was deepens. I've never heard the thing about the wedding before. Huh? I, the mythology deepens. I'd never heard. The oh yeah. About the yeah. I was at a wedding. Yeah. <laughs> I was at a wedding. And one of the and I was a I was a groomsman and one of the bridesmaids was like on Twitter live tweeting the wedding and I thought it was like kind of funny, so I like made my own handle to kind of like make make fun of it and then that is my handle forever now. I'd love and... to think I imagine you sitting at a table and somebody's giving a speech like I a like best man kind of speech. And I love the, I, I imagine you trying to come up with like a Twitter handle and just being kind of stumped. And then somebody just, you know, in the background being like, hey, you know who's great? Paul. <laughs> and you're like, thank you. Yeah. Like, yeah. Paul, it, it's taken. So you have to get Paul is great 2000. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I couldn't just go Paul is great. And then, the first you know, 1, I had to add 2000 to Because remember when like totally the year 2000 happened and everyone added 2000 to everything? Yeah. That, that was. Yeah, anyway. Like so, Dracula. yeah, right. There we go. So uh, that's my handle. You can find me there. I tweet about horror movies and stuff. And you can find, like, links to the stuff I write. So, yeah. And listen to me on Dead Ringers as well. Because that's also a podcast I do. Rock on. Allie, thank you again. Paul, thank you again. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below. Scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Screamatics, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend. <laughs>